0: Fourth Watch starts now. You're listening to Omega Frequency with BDK on the Fourth Watch Radio Network.
1: You are listening to Omega Frequency. This is a podcast about the beginning of the end. I'm your host. DK. How does the false prophet of the book of Revelation rise to such power and authority? Will he anoint a new age messiah to save humanity or will this false messiah be earth's final pharaoh? Tune in and find out. Welcome to episode 100 of Omega Frequency. Omega Frequency is dedicated to encouraging and equipping the remnant bride of Christ and proclaiming the return of Yeshua the Messiah as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If this is your first time checking out the podcast, then thank you so much for taking the time to download this week's episode. I hope that it'll be a blessing to you. And if you're a returning listener, then thank you so much for coming back and supporting us each and every week. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can listen to new episodes when they air on Mondays. You can do that by subscribing for absolutely free on iTunes, or you can listen on demand anytime you want by visiting our podcast archives over at OmegaFrequency.com. And if you're at iTunes, would you please help us make this podcast more visible to first-time listeners. If you leave a rating and an honest review, this would bless us and help us reach more people who are searching for end times truth. We're also blessed to be part of the 4th Watch Radio Network. If you visit fourthwatchradio.com, you're going to be able to check out a wide variety of episodes that cover paranormal and prophetic topics from a biblical worldview and perspective. Now, today's episode is episode 100, and I'm extremely grateful and humbled to have reached this milestone. Whether you have listened from the very beginning or you just recently found out about us, I'm proud to have you as brothers and sisters in this Frequency family. Thank you for all your prayers, words of encouragement, amazing questions, and awesome testimonies. Before we begin, I want to give a special shout-out to Drew Varner, and Brian Schneider. Drew provided the new remix of the Omega Frequency opening theme music that you heard at the beginning of the episode, and Brian provided an original instrumental interpretation of I Surrender All, which you will hear at the end of the episode during the gospel message. Now, this episode is going to focus on a very sober warning from Jesus to his church, in Matthew 24, he made some very startling predictions, but we must understand them clearly and in context of the church to whom he was speaking to. The Bible contains spiritual truths written to the saved, regenerated child of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, Now the natural man doesn't receive the things of God's Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, and he can't know them because they are spiritually discerned. The target audience of the Bible is the church, the saved and redeemed child of God, because the truth of God's word is taught to us and is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit only indwells a saved person. So in Matthew 24, Jesus isn't warning the unsaved world. And he's not warning the tribulation Jews who are yet to be saved of the troubles that will come upon them. He is warning his church that there is going to be a spiritual deception aimed at the saints of God to receive another Christ. Jesus is painting a very specific picture here. He's painting a picture of a spiritual landscape that will exist in the end that will lead to the enthronement of a counterfeit Christ or an antichrist or a replacement Christ. And so we must not fall into deception if we are to remain faithful and endure unto the end. Now today we're going to look at how a form of counterfeit Christianity plans to either take over the church by conversion or by force. And this movement seeks to use this newly hybridized breed of Christianity to manifest the millennial kingdom right now using the 7M mandate. If this new breed church will be ruled by prophets and apostles on a local level, state level, and a nation level, then a chain of command must be established. But who will be the head prophet and apostle who is over all the nations, who will be essentially their commander and chief. Could this person become the false prophet of the book of Revelation? And could this false prophet rise first and become the world's most powerful and influential religious leader? Will he use his influence and authority to anoint a new age Messiah that many will receive as the returned son of God? Of God. Will this new manifest Son of God usher in a golden dawn for all humanity? Or will he be Earth's final Pharaoh? Let's investigate this together right now. Before we begin episode 100 of Omega Frequency, I'd like to take a few moments and give one word of warning and one word of clarification. First, Omega Frequency is a show that tries its level best to remain clean, and we try to keep explicit content to a bare minimum, but from time to time on a Q&A show, someone may ask a question that contains adult content or deals with a taboo issue, but we always try to respond by not being graphic, or needlessly vulgar. Also, from time to time, we also may talk about scary subjects like abduction or ritual abuse or some of the other things that are part of this perverse generation that the Bible lists as signs of the times. And we try to handle these subjects in the least explicit way possible so that all ages can listen freely and be edified. Now, today's episode may contain some sound clips and quotes from leaders within the Christian movement that some people might find offensive, racist, or even blasphemous. I know for a matter of fact, I do. And I struggled with whether I should include them or not. But because a few of these clips speak to the personal character of these ministers and show the complete disregard for God's name and his holy word, and they cross over into the realm of complete mockery, It is germane to this very specific conversation that we're about to have because of these leaders who are being championed as great men and women of God who are filled with the Holy Spirit and are oftentimes prophesying things under the power of the Holy Spirit, yet they're saying such very unholy things, then we must ask, is it the Holy Ghost that is directing and inspiring them because the Holy Ghost is holy? So if you're listening to this, please be mindful. If there's young children present, maybe just listen privately and prayerfully to this episode first before playing it publicly in your car or your house. And now that I've offered this word of warning, I want to offer a word of clarification. This episode shows how it's possible that the false prophet might rise to power and anoint a new age messiah or antichrist. I'm not saying that this is going to happen exactly this way or that way. I am merely speculating based off Bible prophecy, the words and the teachings of Jesus and his disciples, and the writings and the teachings of many different religious sources. For example, if I quote something from a book by Rick Joyner or by a New Ager, that doesn't necessarily mean that I endorse Rick Joyner or that New Ager or hold their teachings or their writings on the same level as Scripture. What I'm doing is I'm comparing all these sources to Scripture to see if they line up with correct doctrine or Bible prophecy. And I'm not saying that Pope Francis is going to be the Antichrist of the book of Revelation either. He may be a false prophet, or he may be a forerunner of the false prophet. I just want to show how the office of Pope could be a major player in this end-time scenario. And that even if we use Pope Francis as an example of how the false prophet could rise to power, he at the very bare minimum is a great object lesson on what to look for in the role of the false prophet. Lastly, and most importantly, sometimes when I publicly name names and share information that shows certain religious leaders or religious movements Making unbiblical statements, I've had people accuse me of judging the minister or the religious movement maliciously. I am not judging them maliciously, and I am not heresy hunting. I am testing and evaluating public statements that they have made either on TV or in church or in a book. They made these statements for people to hear about scriptural subjects. Therefore, the Bible commands us to match these statements up against God's word alone to see if they are biblical. And that is all that I am doing in this episode. And furthermore, I am not judging your salvation. I'm not judging whether or not you're saved if you belong to one of these movements, these churches, or if you follow one of these ministers. There are many sincere people who are hungry for God Within these places that I've just mentioned, they may not be aware of everything these people stand for, teach, or endorse. They may have never heard of some of this information before, and they may not have heard of some of these clips and some of these false prophecies. So they may be ignorant of the situation. We are all at different places in our walk with God. God is still directing some of us into new places that we haven't gone yet, and some of us may still be in places that he has yet to call us out of. So if you belong to one of these movements, churches, or follow one of these ministers, please do not turn off this episode. If you hear something that upsets you, please listen to all of the information until the end and test it against God's word and pray about anything that would trouble you. If you hear something that causes you to ask further questions and you want Phil and I to answer those questions on one of our question and answer episodes, you can go to Omega Frequencies website and you can follow the link that enables you to ask a question for a future episode. Now let's begin our investigation. The first place I want to start this investigation is with what did Jesus reveal to us about the end times? What does he teach us about his return? when he will set up his millennial messianic kingdom? What does he teach concerning the nations that will exist at the time he returns? And what does he teach us about the Antichrist? Because this episode will try to show how the false Christ or Antichrist will use a false theology and understanding of Scripture to his advantage. So we must first understand correct biblical interpretation of Scripture so that we have a baseline to test this false interpretation against. I think this is where we need to understand the scripture in a context that covers just more than just one book alone. We must compare the book of Revelation to the other books of the Bible and not just base our theology off the events described in Revelation alone. If we do this, we will see some very interesting facts arise. First, we will begin to see that Satan is mainly after our worship and our spiritual beliefs. The Bible teaches that he is the little God of this age and that he seeks to blind men to the truth of the gospel, which will lead to true worship of God alone. Satan offered this world and its authority to Jesus in the wilderness during his temptation if he would worship him. Now, Jesus didn't dispute this, and he didn't worship Satan. Satan desired something specific, and that was worship. He wanted to be worshiped as God, and that is why he fell. You can read more about it in Isaiah 14. Today, most Bible prophecy systems of interpretation focus too heavy on the NWO or the global government or the politics of the beast empire and do not give equal time to the religious aspect of it. Yet every type of king who was a type of the Antichrist from Nimrod to Pharaoh to Nebuchadnezzar to the Roman emperors to the Holy Roman Empire of today ruled a political kingdom, but they were more than that. They were an imperial cult. The ruler believed that they were God or a son of God, just like the Antichrist will. He sits in the temple of God and he claims to be God. That shows us that his kingdom is a religious kingdom. We see in the famous chapter of Revelation 13 that the beast or the Antichrist has received his power from Satan, but he's not the main focus of this chapter. It is the false prophet who appears as a lamb. But when he speaks, he speaks like a dragon. You could say that he looks like he's a follower of the lamb, Jesus. But when he speaks, he's speaking the things or the doctrines of Satan. We hear terms like the mark of the beast, and we assume that it's the Antichrist that leads to the giving of the mark. Or we hear image of the beast and we assume that it's the Antichrist who makes it and commands people to worship it. But it's not. This is all being done by the false prophet. He is the main villain in this chapter. He is the one who is leading the world to worship Satan. Satan already has the kingdoms of this world on lockdown. He has had that 2,000 years ago. What he wants is people's Worship. And because it is the false prophet who will prepare the way for the false Messiah and more than likely anoint him as the returned Messiah and compel the world to religiously worship Satan, I think it would be wise to understand how the false prophet will rise to power and how he will merge Christianity with the world's religions to form a one world New Age religion. Because that way we can be like, hey, That's the false prophet. He may look like a lamb. He may look Christian. He may look like he's on team Jesus, but he's going to anoint a new age Messiah. Let's not fall for it. Let's instead follow the real Jesus and look for his real coming and not a counterfeit one. The good news is that Jesus doesn't want us to be deceived. He warns us throughout scripture what to look for and what to guard against. Daniel saw the end times in a series of visions, and these visions disturbed him so greatly that he fasted until God gave him the interpretation. A heavenly messenger came to Daniel and revealed to him the meanings of this vision. In Daniel 10, it describes what this messenger or angel looks like. And if you read Revelation 1, you're going to see that Jesus appears to John, and he is described almost word for word exactly in the same way that he is described in Daniel 10. And that is why many Bible scholars believe that Daniel saw a Theophanes, or a pre-incarnate Jesus, or the angel of the Lord. And I've heard a lot of Bible scholars teach that you have to understand the book of Daniel to fully unlock the meaning of the book of Revelation, because it seems like not only do they contain a lot of the same story, but the imagery is almost word for word at certain points. And this would make sense, because... Revelation could be considered the New Testament commentary on the book of Daniel. In the early church, they were very familiar with the prophecies of Daniel. Jesus often quoted from it and referred to himself as the Son of Man, which was Daniel's title for the Messiah. Now, here's what's very interesting to me. Daniel has a series of apocalyptic visions about the end times. It begins with the proclamation of the rebuilding of the temple in Nehemiah's day, and then it gives a very specific timeline of events that leads to the Messiah entering into Jerusalem and then him being cut off. And then that leads to the rise of the Antichrist, the war that the Antichrist fights, the abomination of desolations, the Antichrist's occult nature, his understanding of dark sentences, his receiving power from an alien god of forces, his persecution and the wearing out of the saints, his exploits, And the building of his empire. And it finishes with how the real Messiah will come and crush his kingdom in the end. Now what was predicted in Daniel is starting to come to pass in the gospel accounts. Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem on the exact day that Daniel said that he would come. And the people did not receive him. But instead they conspire to cut him off or to kill him as Daniel predicted And Jesus starts making some very apocalyptic predictions at this time. He's saying, you guys are missing the hour of your visitation. And what he's referring to are the prophecies of Daniel. He says, I've come in my father's name, but you receive me not. But another will come in his own name, and him you will receive. Referring to the Antichrist who confirms the covenant with many, who they will receive as Messiah. What's he referring to? Obviously the prophecies of Daniel. Then he starts calling himself the son of man. What's he referring to? The prophecies of Daniel and the messianic kingdom. Then he starts talking about the destruction that's going to come upon them and the temple because they did not heed the prophecies of Daniel and they would not receive him. And they are missing the hour of his visitation. Now, this apocalyptic talk doesn't say all the disciples. They think, wait, wait a second here. I thought Jesus was here to restore the kingdom to Israel and tear down Rome and end this current age and begin the Messianic age. But now he's saying that, no, the temple's going to get destroyed and, and no one's going to receive him, but they're going to receive someone else. What the heck, man? So they go to Jesus and they ask him in Matthew 24, 3. It says, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us. When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and the coming of the end of the world or the end of the age? Basically, they were saying, when does this age end and when does the messianic one begin? And now Jesus is going to answer them. But let me ask you something. Where's he going to pull all this information from that he's about ready to drop on them? Is Matthew 24 going to contain all new revelation that no one's ever heard of before? Or is he going to use something as a source material? Would it be logical to assume that if Jesus explained the end times to Daniel, and that if he explained the end times to John using the imagery of Daniel, and that he's been going around this whole entire time in Jerusalem quoting Daniel left and right, that Matthew 24 might also be a commentary on the Messianic prophecies of Daniel? Because Jesus says, when you see these things come to pass, know that my coming is near, even at the door. Could he be saying that when you see these specific prophecies from the book of Daniel being fulfilled, look up, I'm coming. My coming is near. I'm standing at the door of heaven. I'm ready to come through. Jesus starts off by giving us a warning. And let me once again state this up front. This warning is for his followers. It's not for the unsaved people in the world or for the unsaved Jews alone. The Bible clearly states that you have to be saved to receive the things of God. The unsaved person cannot receive these warnings because they are already deceived and blinded. These warnings would fall on deaf ears. They would be foolishness to them. So Jesus is giving his disciples, his followers, And us, a warning. Matthew 24.4 says this, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. So could it be that Matthew 24 is a warning? It's a picture of the tribulation hour described in the book of Daniel and his return after the tribulation of those days. Is he basically saying, Do you want to know what the sign of my coming is? Well, here it is in a nutshell. Watch out. Don't be deceived. Take heed, which in the Greek is blepo. Be observant. Be alert. Be discerning. Take heed that no man deceive you, verse 4. Because many are not going to be watching, and my coming is going to take them unaware, verse 44. Why? Because the servants of the Lord are not looking for him verse 50 notice it's the servants of the lord not the people of the world who are being warned here that they might miss his coming so what's the deception what's so powerful enough to trick servants of the lord into possibly being deceived well according to jesus it's going to play out like this verse 5 For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now, he didn't say many people will be saying that they are the Christ. It's not like he's predicting that David Koresh will deceive the whole entire world. Jesus says that many will come in my name. onomo, which means my name, my authority, as directed or authorized by me. Jesus is saying that the number one sign that we need to look for is that many will rise up from among you saying that they are ambassadors of Christ, that I, Jesus, am the Christ, and that I have authorized and directed them to say what they are saying. But be bleppo, be discerning, because these people will deceive many. Because so many people will think that they are authorized by Jesus. And I'm just going to throw this in here for free. One of the reasons that this generation of Christians is in dire straits right now is because we are commanded to be discerning. We are commanded to line up whatever someone says with scripture, especially if they claim to be on team Jesus, but because we are more concerned with being accepted by men, and the greatest sin of this hour apparently is naming names and exposing false doctrine, we are worried about offending someone more than speaking truth in love so that people won't be deceived in this hour. Next, Jesus says, You shall hear wars and rumors of war, See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. All of these are the beginnings of sorrows. So wars and rumors of wars. What wars? I and mean, if we make it generic, then it could be any war, Right. I mean, it could be the war of 70 AD, it could be the war of World War II, it could be the seven-day war, it could be the World War III, it could be any of the wars in the Middle East right now. How are we to know which wars Jesus was talking about? Which wars would be a sign that his coming is near, even at the door? Could this be why people throughout time look at all the wars that I mentioned and say, oh, wow, this must mean that Jesus is coming back in my generation because this war is happening? Or could it be that these wars Jesus is referring to are the wars recorded in the book of Daniel? Specifically, the wars that the Antichrist fights. And that these wars would be confused with the war that accompanies Jesus when he returns, which would be the Armageddon campaign. Is that why he says these wars are not the end? They are just the beginning? Of the end, why make that a point of emphasis? Why does Jesus warn us twice that these wars are not the end war? The ones that you asked about originally, the one that happens when I come to set up my kingdom, these wars aren't Armageddon. they're only the beginning of sorrows, the beginning of the tribulation. Don't be deceived now at the end of this podcast, we'll get into these specific Daniel wars in greater details we'll We'll tell you who they are and why they could be a source of deception, and why Christians could think that the wars of the Antichrist could look like Armageddon and could mimic the second coming of Christ. Then Jesus says, They shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my sake. And then many shall be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity or sin shall abound, the love of many shall wax or grow cold. But he that endureth unto the end, the same shall be saved. This is very similar to John 16:1 through 2. These things I have spoken to you that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you Will think that he doeth God service. Now we know that the Antichrist of Daniel persecutes the saints. It says that he seeks to wear out the Christians or to persecute them. So Jesus is saying, Look, they will kill you, they will afflict you, they will try to wear you out. When they do it, they'll be doing it using the name of God. They'll be thinking that they do Yahweh a service. So in verse 9, who is this they, the they that will kill and afflict you, that will deliver you up? Well, go back to verse 5. It's the ones who say that I, Jesus, have authorized them to do so. That's why they're thinking that they're doing the Lord a service. The ones who are the deceivers, that's who are doing it. The ones who are the false prophets, verse 11. They're claiming to speak for God. They're doing this because of offense. There's basically a civil war going on amongst you at this time. You're betraying each other. You're hating each other. You're offending each other. And Meanwhile, in the world and in the church, there's going to be so much sin abounding that true love is going to grow cold. Or I could say it this way, because of sin, because of the lawless one of Daniel, The church has become worn out. Its love for Jesus is lukewarm. Their resolve to be faithful has worn thin. Their love has waxed cold. Not only do they fail to preach against sin as Jesus did, but secretly they enjoy sinning too. And this creates a deadly schism within the body, and we become divided over the gospel we preach and what the gospel allows. Here's even more proof that Jesus is giving commentary in the book of Daniel. Verse 15, When ye therefore see the abominations of desolations spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whosoever readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Jerusalem flee to the mountains. Now we'll get to this later, but this is referring to the Antichrist sitting in the temple of God, claiming to be God or claiming to be the Messiah. This is pulled straight from Daniel. The commentary on Daniel is still going. Implicit in this is the building of the temple and the Jewish belief that this act signals the return of the Messiah and the Messianic age. But he is a false Messiah who is about to do something very specific in Judea, which we'll cover later more in detail when we get to the rise of the false Messiah. Jesus continues. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor nor shall ever be. And except those days be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. If any man say, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs, plural, and false prophets, plural, and shall show great signs and wonders, in so much, if were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. So many will believe that the building of the temple will signify the Messiah's coming and the beginning of the Messianic Age, and just because the one who comes and claims to be the Messiah begins sitting in the temple does not mean that the messianic age has begun no it's the opposite jesus says this is actually the beginning of the tribulation and again jesus brings us back to deception he says don't be bedeviled by this false christ or this false prophet or any of the many false christs and the false prophets don't be deceived by the signs and wonders that they're doing They will be very powerful, so powerful that unless you are truly biblically saved, you might be deceived. Behold, I'm warning you before it happens. Do not be deceived by this man. He is not the Messiah. The Messianic age has not begun. Wherefore, if they say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And we'll discuss this in great detail later also. But these are two very specific prophecies about the Antichrist. When they happen, people will believe that the Messiah is among them now, that he has returned. But Jesus is like, no, when I come, it's going to be different. I'm coming in the sky like lightning flashing east to west. When I come, the moon will not give her light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. I am coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. I'm not coming to you the way that I came the first time, born in the earth. I'm not in the desert. I'm not in the secret place, which is the holy of holies found in the temple. I'm coming from the sky. So therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Now, that was kind of an overall Reader's Digest look at Matthew 24. There's much more I could go into, but that's a whole other podcast. But if I could boil this down to a simple narrative, it would be this. The disciples asked Jesus, what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the age? Jesus says, be observant, be alert. Be discerning, because there's going to be a schism of deception in the body. People who say they're on team Jesus will try to deceive you. So be very careful, because before I return, there's going to be a false messiah on the earth, who many will think is me, returned. But he's going to actually be the antichrist of the book of Daniel. He's going to fight some wars in the desert, and people will think that these are the final wars that accompany me when I return, But they are not. This is not the battle of Armageddon. They will enthrone him in the Holy of Holies, in the secret place. But once again, that's not me. The Messianic age has not begun. This is actually the abomination of desolations. You must endure until the end, until I return. Because these people who think I have returned, who are coming in my name, who are falsely prophesying in my name, will kill you. Because they think it's part of the prophetic plan. They think they're actually doing my bidding. So be very careful here. Remember what I told you beforehand. Remember what I told you to look for, for when I return. Where to look for me when I return? Because I'm coming in the skies. Look, otherwise you will be deceived. Don't be a servant who's looking for me in the wrong place or you will be shocked at my coming. And you will mourn because you will be like the others who did not prepare for my coming because they thought I was already here and the messianic millennial age had already begun. Now this is so important because there are a lot of people who honestly question how the servants of the Lord could ever be deceived. Therefore, they think they're immune to deception. Now this podcast came about from a question that Kurt asked me one day while we were kind of chilling on his couch. Kurt's a believer, and he had this very honest question. He said, I don't get it, man. I can see the Antichrist coming and deceiving non-Christians because they don't know the Bible. They don't know Bible prophecy. But how can Christians fall for the Antichrist? How do they get duped by the Antichrist? When he shows up, Christians should be like, wait, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. That's the Antichrist. Bible has so much to say about him we're not fooled by that dude it's like Darth Vader showing up at the rebel base and the rebellion is happy to see him and they're like hey Darth Vader's the good guy we're waiting for how do you mistake Darth Vader for Luke Skywalker man that's such a great question and we did have an amazing discussion about it I basically responded well what if some Christians fell for the Antichrist because they embraced a false theology and a false view of Bible prophecy? What if this theology seems Christian and uses biblical terms, but it's a hybrid or a new breed of Christianity and the New Age? What if this theology is so off-base that it reinterprets the very person of Christ, who he is, and what the gospel is that Christ taught, and how he specifically will return? What if this movement has a ringleader, that has great religious influence. He's a powerful prophet, and he uses specific biblical messianic miracles to influence people into thinking that Christ has returned. Maybe the real coming of Christ takes these people by surprise, not because they didn't understand the prophecies at all, but because their apostolic leader redefined those prophecies and those scriptures. Maybe they receive a counterfeit New Age Christ because they truly believe that he's the real Messiah, because they have a distorted view of the Messiah. And they think that he's in their midst right now, and that the kingdom has already come, so they're not looking for Jesus any longer. And why would they watch for something that they think is already happening right now? Now on that day I spoke with Kurt from the best of my abilities from memory alone, and from some of the knowledge and from some of the research that I had been doing. But today, I'm going to share this conversation with you, but I'm going to show my work, the work that I couldn't show to Kurt that day. And I'm going to use sound clips so that you can hear the information from their own sermons and their own TV shows. I'm going to quote directly from their books and their teachings. I'm going to quote newspaper reports, magazine articles, Jewish prophecies, and Bible prophecies, I'm going to quote Jesus and his disciples and the writings of his earliest followers. I'm going to try to connect the dots on how the false prophet could arise and unite an apostate Christianity with an ecumenical global religion, and also how a new age messianic Messiah could rise to power and become Earth's final Pharaoh. Now, keep in mind, I'm not saying this is 100% how this is all going to play out. And I'm not saying that it's this person and that person or so-and-so is going to be the false prophet and -and so-and-so is going to be the Antichrist. All I'm presenting in this information, this investigation, is information that currently exists that could provide a theological framework for three key things to occur. And this, this episode is basically going to have three parts to it. First, is there a movement within Christianity that's powerful enough to lead the deception that Jesus warned us about? Is this movement redefining who God is, who Jesus is, and who the Holy Spirit is? Is it changing the core beliefs of the gospel, which is the deity of Christ, his burial, his death, and his resurrection? And are they redefining how and when Christ will return and what that will look like? Are they incorporating New Age teachings into Christianity? And are they willing to start a final quest or an inquisition against Bible-believing Christians? Then the second part of this podcast is going to address how the false prophet could use this new breed of redefined Christianity to consolidate his religious authority and influence. If he can become the leader of this redefined Christianity, could he merge them with a one-world religion? And then finally, we're going to look at what the Bible says prophetically about the Antichrist and the specific things that he must do to be the Antichrist. Is the vast majority of Christianity looking in the wrong place for the Antichrist? And will Satan use that to his advantage to reinforce that this New Age Messiah has fulfilled Bible prophecy and returned? So let's start with the first point. Is there a movement within Christianity right now, that's powerful enough to influence and redefine the gospel and introduce New Age practices and teachings into the church. Most people have heard of the Reformation, and we're coming up on the 500th anniversary of it. It not only changed the religious landscape of the time, but it birthed the Protestant movement, and some even say it changed culture and brought us out of the Dark Ages. Now, the definition of the word Reformation Means making changes to something with the intention of setting it back on the right path. The act or process of changing a religious, political, or societal institution for the better. Now, today there's a new Reformation movement sweeping Christianity. Its goal is to bring reform to the church and set it back on a proper prophetic path. Now, this new movement isn't like the Reformation of Luther. You won't find this movement in the form of a denomination. The sign outside won't read Lutheran, Baptist, Methodist, or Assembly of God. This is a movement without walls, formal creeds, or branded churches. And they're more likely to be referred to as individual streams that make the river of God flow in these last days. They're not interested in starting their own denominations. Instead, they wish to use previously established churches As beachheads or apostolic training centers, they wish to reform your current church doctrine. They wish to update it from dry, dusty theology to a revived, full outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In a time when mainstream churches are losing young people at an alarming rate, this movement is attracting record numbers of youth, and the youth are actually its most ardent supporters they have made this movement's music the number one selling genre of Christian music today. This new reformation is based on the idea that the offices of prophets and apostles need to be restored to the church in this hour. Only when that happens can the prophetic word of God direct and lead these spiritual leaders to call forth a generation of forerunners to prepare the way for the return of Christ. This new movement is most commonly referred to as the New Apostolic Reformation, or the NAR for short. Now to get an idea of some of their unique doctrine and their growing influence, let's listen to a clip from Todd Friel. He's the host of Wretched Radio, and he's going to explain the New Apostolic Reformation movement and give us examples of one of the manifestations captured at Bethel's School of Ministry. Where a young kid gets wrecked by the power of God and is thrown to the floor where he convulses and makes hissing noises and rattlesnake noises as the fire of God falls on him.
2: When you hear about explosive growth in South Africa, this is the movement. When you hear about everybody in South America has been saved like six times, this is the movement. 369 million people are influenced or a part of a non-denominational movement. That's the best you can call it, because there's no HQ, there's no president, nobody gets elected, there isn't a pope. Instead, this is just kind of a loosey-goosey association that has wonky theology as its theme this movement people call the new apostolic reformation movement that there are new apostles who are being raised up to lead a forerunner generation the joel generation so that if they will conquer the seven mountains of dominion jesus will return and then they get to rule with jesus and this thing is growing like a nobody's business When I did the presentation, I shared some of the major themes and some of the things that we have seen in this particular movement, and I want to kind of move through these very quickly because this is merely to set the table for the consideration that I would like for you and me to have after we watch what this movement is about, and you're ultimately, I think, going to conclude, whoa, this thing is seriously wacky. You need to know that the kids are entering into it by the millions. And that includes conservative kids. And you and I would be wise as a serpent to figure out why. What do they find so attractive about this mind-numbingly repetitious music that goes on for days? Number 15, tortured teaching To give you an example, I showed a clip of one of the great theologians of this particular movement telling everybody why the stock market and economy in Japan is not doing well and why there are so few Christians. Are you ready? It's because the emperor regularly is intimate with the sun goddess, Not kidding. Number 14 from this movement, downplaying theology. It's all about being led by the spirit, no teaching. Number 13, efforts to take over the world to usher in the return of Jesus. Number 12, radically unfulfilled prophecies. One of their leaders says that 80% of the prophetic utterances by this movement are not accurate. They're never fulfilled. This movement should be grateful that we're not living in Old Testament times because they'd have to duck from all the stones that would be thrown at them for falsely prophesying. More to this movement. Romantic songs about the Savior. Number 10 getting snuggly hugs from Jesus. Number nine, regular visits to heaven and returning to tell all about him. Blowing shofar horns to wake up angels. Number seven, fire tunnels that set kids and everybody else on fire. Uh, By the way, when the kids walk through these fire tunnels and they shake and they twitch, it looks an awful lot like they might have, I don't know, a Kundalini-like spirit. More marks of this movement, the presence of God in the form of gold glitter. Number five, angel feathers falling from the church ventilation system. Not kidding. Number four, werewolf anointings. You'll have to Google that one for yourself. Number three from this movement, lots and lots of dead raising. But interestingly, all of the people who claim to raise people from the dead, they just never seem to have a cell phone available actually film it. Uh, Number two, a mark of this movement, grave soaking to get the anointing of the dead person. And finally, you're going to have to read this one for yourself because I can't. But this was a pastor in a church describing that. What exactly are the kids taught at the Supernatural School? Um, stuff like this.
3: Here we go, Lonnie, here it comes,
1: here comes the foe.
4: <gasps> I see
5: like
4: green flames now.
3: <laughs> you had green
0: on your arm before, bro. That's so
6: crazy. <laughs> we're over here in that house. <sighs> it's having a party <laughs> right
3: now
6: on the ground well, I, mean, I prophesy okay. of you that the fire of God is going to fall <laughs> upon you right now yes. it's going to go right within your heart
3: yeah,
2: God. right within your heart God. here it comes let fire fall Jesus, Jesus.
0: Oh.
3: here it comes here it comes more more, more God more,
0: more.
3: Yeah. life changing Father yeah, more don't let
0: it stop
6: God more <laughs> more change <of> him <laughs> inside a inside
3: and out <laughs> you blow in. ignite the fire should I blow the horn over him? yeah I'm gonna blow the horn over you, Lonnie. I'm gonna blow the horn over you. Shau rapa ba. Shau rapa shau rapa. More guns.
5: <again>. More! It's a conch shell, actually. More guns.
0: <laughs> <More again. laughs> <laughs>
2: It's hard to measure these things this could be the fastest growing version of Christianity in the world
1: now he is so right this could be the fastest growing version of Christianity in the world and that's not even taking into account the word of faith the emergent church and the seeker sensitive church which just adds to this cocktail of deception and make no mistake about it, this is a movement of deception. It trades on deceptive terms. It redefines classical time-tested theology. When its doctrines or its prophets get exposed as false, they repackage them in new terms and new titles, but they never change the concepts. They just update the names. That's why they are sneaky and they own it. That's why it's so important to know what they mean When they're talking about the Great Commission or being born again or the return of Christ, it's important that we define the terms. Because you might attend a church that is influenced by the New Apostolic Reformation and you may say, you know what, I feel safe. I don't think these guys are a part of the New Apostolic Reformation. But wait a minute, they're teaching NAR doctrine. Now, one of the first things... They do, is that they make God subjective. And they teach that the written doctrine is not as important as the personal spiritual revelation. You must go to God and ask him to reveal himself to you. If you start hearing this at your church, your church is probably influenced by the new apostolic reformation. Remember Todd Friel saying that he won't say what the number one example of this false teaching is because he can't. You'll have to go hear it for yourself. Well, I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to play that for you right now. And when I do, you're going to see more clearly this subjective God teaching that we're talking about. And you're going to hear them make some pretty outrageous claims. And then when we get back from this clip, we're going to look at the origins of the New Apostolic Reformation and some of the other points that Todd addressed and talked about concerning some of their key beliefs. Now, this first clip that Todd wouldn't talk about, that you would have to hear for yourself, this features Jen Johnson. She's the daughter of Bill Johnson, who is the head of Bethel Church. And she's teaching this at Bethel, and it was broadcast on Bethel TV. Okay,
4: here we go. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. I can't define who he is to you. You need to ask him to define himself to you i feel i feel like i'm supposed to ask you to ask him some questions today and i want you to go to him and ask him to define who he is to you and what that looks like god to me jesus to me and the holy spirit to me is like the genie from aladdin It's who he is to me, and he's funny, he's sneaky, (laughs) he's silly, he's wonderful, he's like the wind, he's he's all around. You know the scene in Revelations where the angels circle the throne, and they say, holy and you just, it's this reverent, like, holy, every time they, they circle the throne, they say, see a new side of his face, and they're just taking him back, and it's all they can do to say, holy, and they just keep circling, because there's never an end. It's limitless to what they see as they circle. And I was thinking yesterday, I thought, <laughs> I wonder how much they laugh because he's funny. I wonder how much he just goes, oh yeah, look at that!" And they're like. "Ah!" And I thought of those angels circling that throne and I thought, I bet they text each other. (laughs) I bet they have farting contests.
1: Now, one of the criticisms that I get from time to time is, you know, sure, man, anyone can play a clip by someone teaching something silly or some random nobody laying on a grave. That doesn't mean that it's an endorsed practice of Bethel and an approved teaching of Bethel. You're just using an isolated incident. You're nitpicking. You're teaching theology from basically a non-approved nobody. Well, that was Jen Johnson, the daughter of Bill Johnson the pastor of this church. She was teaching the people of Bethel from on stage. This wasn't like some little one-off gig. This was an officially sanctioned service. And her father never came out and said, hey, Jen is wrong here. Instead, he puts it on his official TV station and then he uploads it to their official YouTube channel, Bethel.tv.redding, so that people can view it anytime they want On demand. Now, it troubles me that people can defend such obviously false doctrine. She's redefining who God is. She's comparing him to a genie in a bottle, and she's mocking God openly. And if I'm being... Completely scriptural here. She's coming dangerously close to the warning of Revelation 22:11, which says, "For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book." And and the reason that she's coming dangerously close to it, she's adding stuff. I mean, in in, in Revelation 4:8, there, there there's no farting contest that's going on. God's not punking angels in heaven. Now, leaving aside the obvious insane banter about angels texting each other and having heavenly farting contests, the fact that the people were laughing their butts off at all this is a whole nother issue. Because, like most sober minded, spirit filled Christians, would hear that kind of shenanigans in a church sermon and they would be like, you know what? That offends me. That's not funny. I'm not going to laugh at it. I'm going to get up. I'm going to leave. They don't. They're laughing. They're roaring with laughter. They're like, ha, 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 that's so funny. Ha, 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 it's so funny to call God a genie. Ha, 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 ha it's so funny to mock God. And I know, man, it's like most people, they're going to hear the clip. They're just going to remember the farting contest part. But like in reality, that's not even the most dangerous part of this whole scenario. The most dangerous part is she says, who is God to you? I can't define who he is to you. You need to ask him for a personal revelation of who he is to you. Now, this is super dangerous ground. The Bible clearly defines who the Godhead is, who Jesus is. And as a matter of fact, Jesus is the perfect revelation of the Father. So if you study the Bible and the simple words of Christ, you're going to see that God is not a sneaky genie, and he's not there to grant your wishes or prank angels. The reason God settles his word forever in heaven and reveals himself through the word of God is so that we can know who he is and what he approves of and disapproves of. And he does this for our own protection because sin has consequences. We reap what we sow. So God reveals to us in his word what he approves of and what he doesn't approve of, what is sin and what isn't sin so that we don't have to trust our own hearts and our feelings to determine who God is and what God is all about. God doesn't have to become subjective, and therefore we don't fall into dangerous ground. We don't fall into a situation where we're reaping bad things. If we just build our life upon the rock-solid revelation of God, we have things on lockdown. But if it's just our own hearts, then... We are in dangerous grounds because the Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can trust it? So is your God a super jolly God who exists to make you happy like a genie? Is he a God who would never judge? You know, he would never judge me. He's just laughing. He's joking all the time. You know, that's the kind of God that I want to worship, the kind of God that gets me, the kind of God that understands me, the kind of God that that understands all my struggles. You know, like Like what if you struggle with lust? What if you just can't seem to stop lusting over a person? You know what's wrong? You're like, you know, I'm married, but my wife she just doesn't make me happy anymore. But you know who is happy? God is happy. God is such a happy God, and He wants me to be happy. So what the heck, man? Let's do it. Let's 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 get a divorce. Let's marry another woman. I mean, just ask Todd Bentley, the new apostolic prophet or apostle of the Lakeland revival. He committed adultery during a time of ministering at the revival at Lakeland. He divorced his wife and instead of reconciling with her, he married another woman and now he's out there preaching revivals again. I mean, how do you justify that? Especially when you continue in public ministry when the Bible itself is would disqualify you, especially since he was the cheater and not the one who was cheated on. This current marriage that he is currently in, according to God's word and his written revelation, he is someone who is living in active adultery, and he's still ministering. Well, that's okay if God approves of it. If he's like, well, who is God to you? And and my God approves of that, because I can't define who God is to you, you need to ask him for a personal revelation of who he is. Well, apparently this is the sort of God that approves of adultery and not only approves of adultery, but gives you Holy Ghost power to still minister while living in adultery. They have redefined God and created a God that's okay with certain shenanigans. And it's these sort of shenanigans that leave a bad taste in people's mouths and there is a movement amongst some of the new apostolic reformation leadership to distance themselves from even the name new apostolic (laughs) reformation that's how wacky some of this stuff gets and that wouldn't shock me because they've done this in the past they've switched up names time and time and time again but they've kept rotten doctrine so we need to go back to the beginning. And we need to investigate this doctrine. We need to understand this doctrine so that when you come across it, no matter what name they're giving it, the, the warning siren should go off. The Holy Ghost siren should sound. You should be like, warning, warning, false doctrine, false doctrine. So let's go back. Let's let's take a trip back. Let's go to the origins. This started off as the latter rain movement, and it eventually morphed into the New Apostolic Reformation. And it's eventually going to morph into a new breed blend of kind of like a seeker-friendly church, emergent church, social justice church, kind of wrapped in the cloak of an NAR prophetic movement, and Catholic mysticism is going to be all involved. And it's going to kind of be like a hodgepodge of evil. And we'll document that later, too. But we'll begin to see, as we study this, that it doesn't really matter, the titles can change, people can be discredited, and the main players who cause the change because they're being exposed and because they're bringing scandal to the movement, it doesn't even matter then. Because they're still revered, they become restored, and their false doctrines still get taught as key parts of its theology. So let's trace the roots of the New Apostolic Reformation back. It can be traced back to three main ministers that rose to prominence in the early 1940s. From this movement came the Independent Pentecostal Assembly of the Latter Reign or the New Order of the Latter Reign. And the main minister was William Branham. He was a charismatic country preacher who had one of the most famous prophetic healing ministries of all time. He is still to this day highly revered in this movement. And as we'll hear later, key ministers within the New Apostolic Reformation believe that his message must be restored to the church before Christ can return. Then there was Ern Baxter, who was a close associate of Branham, and George Warnock, who was Baxter's personal secretary. These three kind of made like an unholy trinity of this new rain movement this latter rain movement warnock actually wrote a book called the feast of tabernacles in 1955 which codified a lot of this and it's considered a primary foundational text for this movement in his book he describes the jewish feast of passover pentecost and tabernacles as ones that typify the whole church age beginning with the death of jesus on the cross and ending in what he calls, quote-unquote, the manifestation of the sons of God. These are the, quote-unquote, overcomers who step into immortality and establish the kingdom of God on earth. And in order for this to happen, there has to be a full restoration of the fivefold ministry, and that would include the office of prophets and apostles. Now, this restoration would usher in a revival or an outpouring of the Spirit called the latter rain. And this latter rain revival would lead to the manifestation of the sons of God or Joel's army rising up. Now, this book and these three ministers, their latter rain movement taught that the end of the age was approaching and that God would purge the leaven from his church And this would allow for the manifest sons of God to arise from within the church. And these manifest sons of God would come into the full stature of Jesus Christ, and they would receive the Spirit of Christ, or God, without measure. They would be as Jesus was when he was here on earth. They would be his legal bride. They would receive a number of divine gifts, including the ability to, to change their physical locations at will, to speak prophetically through the Holy Spirit. They would be able to perform divine healings and other mystical sign miracles. They would complete the work of God. They would do greater works than Jesus and restore man's rightful position as he was originally mandated in the book of Genesis. And they would do this by coming into the full stature of Christ, by taking dominion over all of the nations of the earth, and by doing that, they will literally usher in the millennial reign. Upon fulfilling this mandate, the ultimate manifest Son of God will appear, the returned Messiah, or Christ. And they will hand the kingdom over to him, and Christ will be complete. And together, as a husband and bride, they will co-rule the universe and the problem with this is that it's based largely off the personal revelation of prophecies given to William Branham by the quote unquote holy spirit and his angel and not biblically accepted classical theology i mean charismatic historian robert slairden wrote about william branham in his famous book god's general he's a he's a historian of church movements and revivals. And he outlines some of the problems associated with Branham and his teachings and his latter reign movement. Quote, Branham had an incredible healing gift, but having no knowledge of the Bible to match it, he turned into a doctrinal disaster. He even suggested that animals were a higher rank of species than women. He predicted the destruction of the United States would begin in 1977. He often changed his doctrine of salvation as well. All except the staunchest Branhamite recognized that Branham's teachings had gone seriously awry, and a cult had formed around his personality. They encouraged Branham in his weird visions, claiming him to be the new Elijah, a forerunner of Christ's return. Though saddened by his death, the Pentecostal world was not surprised. Many believed it was an act of mercy on God's behalf that through death, he saved Branham's soul from hell, unquote. So how would you like to hear that about your your um, top leader, the guy who's inspiring all your doctrine? The guy was so off on so many things That God being a loving God was like, you know what, maybe I'll kill this guy before he has the chance to really screw things up because he might end up going to hell. It's not the kind of guy you kind of want to base your religion around or your movement around. And like people got that. Like in 1949, the largest Pentecostal denomination, the Assemblies of God saw this guy for what he was, saw what this movement was doing to the church, and they declared in the General Council Resolution Number no. 7 of 1949 this very statement. They said, We disprove of these extreme teachings and practices, which being unfounded scripturally serve only to break fellowship of like precious faith and tend to sow confusion and division amongst the members of the body of Christ be it hereby known that this 23rd General Council disapproves of this so-called new order of the latter reign. And while the assemblies of God dodged a split from within by separating itself from the latter reign movement, it would not last because two more men would rise to power within this newly formed charismatic movement of the 70s, and that would be Bob Jones and Paul Kane. Now, both picked up the prophetic teaching and the mantle of William Branham. Notably, that the word of God was given through the Holy Spirit by prophetic utterance, and therefore could only be fully interpreted by the prophets. Now, they gained influence and power in the charismatic movement, in Kansas City in 1980s, and they anointed a core group of ministers known as the Kansas City Prophets. This included such people as Mike Bickle, Rick Joyner, Jack Deere, and Francis Frangipane. The latter rain movement transitioned to this prophetic shepherding movement in the 80s, and then the new breed youth movement. Now, Bob Jones had a vision of this end times revival. And in a conversation with Mike Bickle, he describes the vision in which he saw elected seeds that would be an end generation that would be predestined to inherit all things. He claimed that they would set the church back on its proper foundation, that they'd birth the church, that they'd be the leaders of the last day church and that they would be the best of all generations. He claimed that they would move into the things of the supernatural to the point where they would actually put death itself under their feet. This new breed generation, this new breed youth movement, would be a warfare generation that would take the promised land and possess it, and they would reach the full maturity of the God-man and come into the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Now, Mike Bickle then replied to this and said that this end times army would have 300,000 enlistment notices for the next generation. This 300,000 would be the main leadership over 1 billion converts in the earth and that these forerunners would bear a distinct anointing. This army generation was referred to in racial terms as the best of every bloodline in the earth, superior to every other seed on the earth. Bickle then explained that there would be a time of war and transitioning of the whole orders within the body, and that this new breed of elect seeds would actually be the end times, Joel's army. Rick Joyner, another Kansas City prophet, added, the Latter Rain doctrine, once declared a heresy amongst people, is finding a place in all denominations through the unity of charismatics with other faith. Paul Cain said, out of this unity will come an army, Joel's army. So while classical Pentecostals rightly denounced the Lateran movement as heresy, it was spreading through the charismatic movement, And the charismatic movement was spreading through the Catholic churches and many of the Protestant churches too. Here's Paul Cain explaining about Joel's army. I told you about this reoccurring 35-year-old vision I had. The angel of the Lord said, you're standing at the crossroads of life. What do you see? And I saw brilliantly lit signboards that read, Joel's army now in training. I believe one day soon Joel's army will be in training until it graduates into the stadiums. God is offering this to you, this present generation, a greater privilege than it was ever offered to any other generation from the time of Adam clear down through the millennium. I had a vision of people coming from a circle, maybe hundreds of miles, and I saw people coming from every major city within that circumference and a great conclave was taking place, and it was the training of Joel's army. I believe that people are going to come together by the thousands and train for the army of the Lord. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I mean, it's long overdue. I see all of the stadiums and all of the ballparks are filled with hundreds of thousands of people. They have hearses lined up, ambulances lined up. They have hundreds of stretcher cases and all of that. They're preaching under the mighty power, calling down Fire from heaven. But there was one problem with all this. These two main guys, this Paul Kane and this Bob Jones, well, they fell. Paul Kane confessed to homosexuality and alcoholism during all these visions and had to step down. And Bob Jones was removed from ministering in a vineyard church after confessing to sexual misconduct with two women. This misconduct included encouraging the women to strip in his office so that they could stand naked before the Lord in order to receive a prophetic word. So what spirit were they making all these prophecies under? If They had drinking problems and were engaged in homosexuality and they were basically using their religious position as kind of like a way to see women undress before them. But the Holy Ghost doesn't play games like that, man. So follow me on this, okay? William Branham teaches that the Lateran theology is supposedly inspired by the Holy Ghost. But like when he dies, most of the Pentecostals are like, you know, God probably killed that dude as an act of kindness. And his discredited manifest sons of God and dominion theology didn't die with him, though. Instead it grows even further and bigger under a different name and it's the exact same message under Bob Jones and Paul Kane. But they are also discredited because of moral failures. And for the most part the Assemblies of God they stayed away from the Kansas City prophets of the 80s because they were like, "You know what? That's basically Latter Rain repackaged." But what they didn't do was they didn't guard themselves against parts of the charismatic movement. They didn't guard themselves against the word of faith movement, TBN, or people like Kenneth Copeland, who we will later hear, William Branham, influenced him in a big way, and his word of faith theology and his word of faith movement. All of this changed through the mid-90s, though, because a South African evangelist named Rodney Howard Brown was ministering in the charismatic and word of faith churches. He was kind of called the Holy Ghost bartender. I kid you not. That's what they called him. The Holy Ghost bartender called himself that he was proud of that. Um, He believed in something called holy laughter and spiritual drunkenness. He believed that when the Holy Ghost would come upon people, it would cause them to shake, tremble, bark, hoot, howl, laugh uncontrollably, sometimes faint, sometimes get wrecked on the ground. And this would be the drunken glory of the Lord, a Holy Spirit high. It was joy unspeakable and full of glory. And this manifestation could be transferred by the laying on of hands. This was a new wrinkle. And one night during a meeting at Kenneth Copeland's church, both Rodney Howard Brown and Copeland suddenly became overwhelmed by what they called the Holy Spirit. And they began telling jokes to each other in tongues with no interpretation, they were slapping each other on the back, they were stumbling around like they were two friends at a bar closing time, just telling dirty jokes to each other. what other people
0: think no uh-huh it doesn't matter what they think <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I'm going go see
1: now after they mocked the holy ghost for a little while they went around and they you know laid hands on people and then the people got drunk in the spirit too. And then like if you're watching the video, the whole place is just an insane chaos. But then near the end of the service, they decide that they're going to call up any ministers that might still be left in the crowd and they would transfer this Holy Ghost, Holy Laughter anointing to them. And then the ministers could take it back to their congregations and replicate it and have drunken revivals in their church. Well, in the crowd was a minister named John Arnott. He was the pastor of the Toronto Airport Vineyard Fellowship Church, and he came forward that night to be prayed for, for that laughing revival anointing to be imparted to him. And soon after that, a laughing revival did break out in that Toronto church. It was called the Toronto Blessing. Crazy manifestations began happening again. People were shaking, they were trembling, they were barking, they were hooting, they were howling, they were laughing uncontrollably, they were fainting. They were speaking in tongues, doing all the crazy stuff that was going on in Copeland's church. But it was known as the blessing because people would come from all over the world to be blessed and to receive an impartation. And they would take what they called the fresh fire back with them and they would spread that fire throughout their churches. So it was like a virus infecting all these different churches. And to say that this was controversial was understating the situation. And once again, this revival was viewed as a fulfillment of the latter rain revival because all the bad theology began popping up again. It was so crazy that Charisma publisher Stephen Strang, who is heavily sympathetic to the New Apostolic Reformation now, would not endorse The Holy Laughter Phenomenon, personally in 1995, this is Charisma Magazine. It's kind of like the Time Magazine of Charismatics, right? And so he is writing an article about his visit down to the Toronto Airport Vineyard Fellowship in 1995. He went to investigate this Toronto blessing firsthand. He was even slain in the spirit. And in the February 1995 edition of Charisma, he writes... Am I endorsing what I saw and experienced in Toronto? No! Because I still don't understand much of it. Similar manifestations have occurred in past revivals, but I believe an experience should also be established in the Word of God. Furthermore, I'm concerned. First, I'm concerned that such a move of God has the potential to create a new group of spiritual elitists, with those who have experienced strange manifestations wearing them like badges of spirituality. Second, I'm concerned that the manifestations themselves could become so important that people don't receive them through the power of the Holy Spirit and will fake them, as Simon the Magician wanted to do in Acts 8. Finally, I'm concerned that a new denomination of sh- shriekers, twitchers, and laughters could spring up. Impossible, you say? Well, remember the shakers and the Quakers, religious sects named after the phenomenon for which they are known. End quote. Now, good for him. Good for him for calling out these shenanigans. Good for him for standing up against the charismatic movement at the time and saying, this is not good. This is not good. We, we, we should not be involved in this. But all of that changed. All of that changed because one of the most influential Assembly of God churches, the Brownsville Assembly of God, caught this fresh fire and revival broke out the same year the pastor's wife, the evangelist, and the worship leader of the Brownsville Assembly of God went to the Toronto Airport Vineyard Fellowship, and they got prayed for, and they came back to the Brownsville Assembly of God, and on Father's Day in 1995, the Brownsville Revival started, and all of the crazy manifestations swept through the Assembly of God movement. Now, while this was going on, I was training to be an Assembly of God pastor and evangelist at the time, and I remember how this awesome, cool, small, classical, Holy Ghost filled church that I was a part of, that I loved, that I got filled with the Holy Ghost in, that I served in, was split down the middle over this revival. Many people left the church. And those that remained started making trips down to Brownsville to bring the revival anointing back to my church. And the fresh fire of the Holy Ghost began spreading through my church and the denomination. And what happened was, in the denomination, many of the pastors and evangelists left the church. They even turned in their own ordination and credentials and started independent classical Pentecostal churches of their own. Now, I stayed for a little bit longer because I wanted to see what would happen and I also had to finish my schooling. But I saw this false revival rip my church apart. And then finally I had to leave also. And it's so sad. It's tragic. Because in 1949, the Assembly of God denomination denounced the latter rain movement. They said, we disapprove of Of those extreme teachings and practices, which being unfounded scripturally, serve only to break fellowship of the like precious faith, and tend to sow confusion and division amongst the members of the body of Christ. They were no longer dodging any bullets. What was damnable heresy to them back then, now was accepted. And because of that, the very thing they were trying to avoid division, confusion, and Broken Fellowship happened. And with a credible denomination like the Assemblies of God behind it, Charisma, who only a few months beforehand would not endorse this whole shenanigans in Toronto, embraced it wholeheartedly in Florida. And soon the revival fire spread. And this time it rebranded itself as the New Apostolic Reformation. Same teachings, same unbiblical manifestations, same prophetic voices, soon in each Assembly of God church They that, that would have like a church bookstore in the church or a church library in the church, like classical good old school Pentecostal books were being phased out, charismatic books were being phased in, books by Rick Joyner and other New Apostolic Reformation, Kansas City Prophets were being stocked and sold. It's like if we had only learned to check the teachings and the source of the teachings, we would have realized that it was the same heresy under a different name. Now, like I said before, it's important to understand the doctrines and the hallmarks of the new apostolic reformation because they are changing terms again. And if we don't learn, then we're just going to repeat this history lesson. Now I'm going to look at two of the big hallmarks of, of the new apostolic reformation next because these are ones that will play directly into end times prophecy and the prophecy specifically of Matthew 24 one is the doctrine of dominionism and the other is this new breed youth army or the manifest sons of god now when all of this started the latin Reign movement taught that at the end of the age as it approached that god would purge the leaven from his church And this would allow for the manifest sons of God to arise from within the church. They would complete the work of God and do greater works than Jesus and restore man's rightful position as it was originally mandated in Genesis. They would do this by coming into the full stature of Christ, taking dominion over all the nations of the earth. They usher in the millennial reign and upon fulfilling the mandate, the ultimate manifest son of God appears, the return Christ, the return Messiah. They hand the kingdom over to him, and Christ is complete. Now, how do they fulfill this mandate? They feel that every society has basically seven spheres of influence that must be made subject to the rule of God's people. The first one is education, then religion, then family, then business, then government-slash-military, then arts-slash-entertainment, and then media, if they can influence each of these seven areas, then they can Christianize a nation and eventually the world. Now, this teaching goes by a few different terms because, like I said, they're changing terms and titles all the time, but the theology is exactly the same. So if you hear Kingdom Now theology or Christian Reconstructionism or Christian Dominionism, Or Dominion Theology, or Seven Mountain Mandate, or the Seven Mission Fields, or the Millennium Mandate, or currently the newest one is just the 7M Mandate. Um, At least that's what Lance Walnut is calling it today. Uh, And believe me, man, Lance has become the Seven Mountain go-to guy. He's traveling around, doing multiple shows and conferences with his whiteboard and his dry erase markers. And just because he says 7M doesn't mean that he's talking about something new. Like, he brings out the whiteboard, and he literally draws seven mountains on the whiteboard and then writes education, religion, family business, government, arts, media, entertainment. He, like, writes them all on each mountain, and then he just calls them the 7M mandate. So let's take a listen to Lance here. Lance is going to explain this 7M mandate to everyone.
7: Hi, I'm Lance Wallnow. I want to talk to you for a moment about this concept called the 7M mandate. In reality, it started with a conversation I had in the year 2000. I had been talking to Lauren Cunningham, who's the founder of Youth with a Mission. And Lauren was sharing with me about a conversation he had had with Bill Bright. The two of them were visited, actually, by the Lord within the same 24 hours. And God spoke to them and said they had a message to give the other man. And the message was that there are seven molders of culture, or seven world kingdoms, and that he who could take those kingdoms... To take the harvest of nations. Now, this illustration is the way I see it. I look at it this way I see those seven molders of culture as being the religion mountain, as a metaphor for something you've got to take or climb. Uh, then we have education, we could say, family. These are in no particular order of importance. They all represent the forces that shape societies and nations government, media, art which is the entertainment mountain, and uh, business, which is where we have the economics mountain happening also. Now, these seven fields of influence are very powerful, so powerful, in fact, that he who occupies the top of those mountains can literally shape the agenda that, that forms nations. Now, why would nations be critical to our conversation? I think the distinguishing characteristic of this hour for the church is that we have spent so much time focusing on the church mountain, which would be this mountain over here, that we have maybe forsaken our responsibility to the rest of the world we're called to influence. It's interesting to me that when the kingdom is brought up by Jesus, it's his first message, and it's his final message. For 40 days, he's talking to the disciples about the kingdom, the kingdom, I believe, is larger than just what the church addresses. And this becomes the issue for us to contend with. You see, somewhere along the arc of time, we made a decision in the body of Christ that may not have been a wise one. We looked at the quantitative call of the gospel, that is, the call to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And we look at the harvest of souls that as the main issue or agenda that we're focused on. But you see, there is a qualitative also aspect to this. And the qualitative assignment we have is to actually transform nations. And this process is called making disciples of what? Nations.
1: Okay, Lance, so you believe that the kingdom of God is larger than what the church addresses. And that's all well and good that him and his buddies in the NRA believe that. But people can believe a lot of stuff that sounds good, especially if they wrap it in biblical language that sounds convincing. The problem isn't like what we believe. It's does the Bible support what we believe? Because he's trying to redefine the Great Commission. He actually quotes Matthew 28:19: Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now notice how he subtly twists it, right? He says we focus too much on the preaching part, the church part, the church mountain. Jesus was actually saying that we need to make the nations disciples of Christ. We need to make the nations follow Christ. We need to make America a Christian nation. We need to make Europe a Christian nation. We need to make Japan a Christian nation. We need to influence each of these seven spheres of influence in the nation until the nation itself is Christian. He switches it from saving the souls of the people who live in the nation to saving countries. He changes it to influence all aspects of the nation or the country. They are to win society. They're they're taking territory instead of just saving people's souls. So he's like, you're doing too much preaching to people. Stop that. Knock all that preaching off. Knock it off, man. Like, you want to do something really good? Make a nation Christian. Do that instead. That's how we make disciples. But what did Jesus and the apostles teach? Well, 1 Corinthians 1.21. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So don't don't, don't knock off the preaching. Don't, Don't do that. Mark 16:15 and he said unto them go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature or person. So that's a parallel passage. So we see that Jesus is more specifically not saying go and make Christian nations. He's saying go into the world and preach the gospel to the people living in the nations, to every person. Jesus himself, Luke 4:18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? To preach the gospel to the poor. Jesus wasn't anointed to to win nations. He was anointed to preach the gospel to people who were spiritually poor, who needed to hear the good news. Notice the emphasis is on preaching to convert souls. That's the real spiritual kingdom mandate. When standing before Pilate, Jesus said, I am a king, but my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom to be conquered, John 18.36. Jesus answered and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from hence, or it's not from here, or it's not of this world. Furthermore, not only is the Bible full of the teachings of Jesus, they also show us how the followers of Jesus interpreted, and practiced his teaching. So, in theory, if Jesus is talking about making disciples and commissioning them, then what did he do in the gospel accounts? What did the apostles do in the book of Acts? How did it kind of play out on the pages? I mean, Paul put it this way. I want you to follow me as I follow the example of Christ. So, like, how did Christ make disciples? Was he talking about making disciples? physical people, disciples, or was he talking about Christianizing nations? Did Christ ever take the seven mountains of Rome? Did he ever take them? Did he ever try to conquer the seven molders of cultural influence? Do we see Jesus doing any of that? Did he instruct his disciples to run for office or to join the military or or to transfer the wealth of Rome over to the church or to go to the amphitheater and write a Christian play? or a Christian song, or become a gladiator for Jesus, or any of that stuff. How come when the rich young ruler came to him, Jesus didn't say, wait a minute, you're rich, and you have money, and you have power. Use your power as a ruler to influence other rulers to follow me. Instead, Jesus is like, no, 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 you give away all your riches. And if you do that, you're going to lose the influence that your money buys you. You're no longer going to be a rich ruler, but you will be a plain disciple who's walking around and following me. But that'll be better. And where does Lance get this idea that when Jesus comes back, that the world will be under the dominion of the Christian faith, that Christians are actually going to be in charge of everything, that if they do their job right, they'll be the popular majority. Is this what Jesus taught about the end times? Luke 18, verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith left on the earth? Seems like we're going to be in the minority, not the popular majority. As a matter of fact, we're not going to be very popular. Matthew 10.22 says, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth or survives unto the end shall be saved. Matthew 24.9 And then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. I I, I don't see how we're going to be the ones in charge. I don't see how we're going to be the popular um, power majority block here. seems like we're going to be a little bit more on the narrow way side. I mean, like John 15, 19 through 20 says, if you were of this world, the world would love you. But because you're not of this world, because I have chosen you out of this world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they have kept my sayings, they will also keep yours. So why are we trying to take dominion over this world? We've been chosen out of the world. The world is not going to love us. It's going to hate us. It's going to persecute us. I mean, read 1 Chronicles 29.15 and 2 Peter 2.11. I mean, those two passages tell us specifically we're to live the pilgrim life. We're just kind of passing through. We're aliens and we're strangers on this earth, heading as pilgrims towards a heavenly kingdom, a heavenly home. And our mission is to evangelize as many souls as possible on our way home. But Dominionists are like, no, 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 no. That's not what Jesus meant. We need to take this world right now. Dominionists use words like fight, battle, conquer, take, win, expand the rule of God through the earth, make Jesus famous. But did the disciples of Acts or the church fathers strategically set out to be artists or entertainers? How come Paul never wrote a letter instructing people how to be a CEO or a Caesar? How come Paul or Peter never wrote to the church and said, you know what? Shape the agenda of Rome. Sit on top of the mountains and shape the agendas of nations. How come the earliest church fathers didn't do any of this either? Could it be that they were following Paul and Peter and John as they followed Christ? Tertullian wrote this treaty on Christians and government in 197 CE. And in this, he says something very, very striking. He says, as those in whom all zeal in the pursuit of glory and honor is dead, we have no pressing inducement to take part in your public meetings, talking politics here, nor is there anything at all more entirely foreign to us than affairs of state, if also Jesus exercised no right of power, even over his very own followers to whom he discharged menial ministry, if in short through conscience of his own kingdom, he shrank back from being made a king. He in the fullest manner gave his own as an example for turning coldly from all the pride and garb as well as the dignity of power. For if they were to be used, who would rather have used them than the Son of God? What kind and number of weapons would escort him? What kind of purple would bloom from his shoulders? What kind of gold would beam from his head? Had he not judged the glory of the world to be both alien to himself and to his? Therefore, what he was unwilling to accept, he has rejected. What he has rejected, he has condemned. What he has condemned, he has counted. As part of the devil's pomp. They ain't, ain't, ain't one bit. of seven mountain mandate in that. Guarantee that. I mean the early church was so dead set. Against these political and worldly things. Entering into the church. And corrupting the church. And it's spiritual mission. That they would actually deny. Baptism to some of these people. If their positions. Of authority would go against the teaching of Christ. And the apostles. Hippolytus wrote a treaty on baptism in 218 AD, and he says, A military constable, if he wants to be baptized, must be forbidden to kill. And if he's commanded to kill in the course of duty, he must not take this upon himself, neither may he swear oath. If he is not willing to follow these instructions, he must be rejected. A proconsular or a civic magistrate who wears the purple and governs by the sword, shall have to give it up or be rejected. Now notice he didn't say, let's baptize them and let's let them stay in government and wear the purple or let them stay in the military and use their powers and their influence to change the laws on killing and make the laws better, therefore saving Rome. No, he was like, these dudes, they give it up or they're rejected and we're not baptizing them. Now, that's what the NAR and Lance would call way too rigid church leadership. Lucky for them, this 7M mandate has an answer to that. In this next clip, Lance is going to take this one step further and explain the real purpose behind the 7M mandate to us all. He's going to take it into the very dangerous, unbiblical territory that seeks to redefine the structure of the church, its actual purpose for ministry, and how that ministry will be overseen and dispensed because according to him this seven mandate is going to be disruptive and it's actually going to change the ecclesiastical leadership structure of the church
7: so here's what peter and i would talk about he said the seven mountains he said look lance he said this this is it now here's the interesting thing i said the next iteration of this thing is going to be very disruptive it'll have to involve apostolic centers a redefinition of church, and a thing called microchurch. And I'll say this about Peter, because I really submitted to him. He said, don't talk about it yet. I said, why? He said, because it's such a powerful concept. It could blow up. I said, really? We're not used to that. You know, you could pretty much teach anything. Third heaven, second heaven, this, that, you know. So I was wondering, what is it about this that he intuitively knew was explosive? It really redefines the next wave of engagement for the body of Christ in a way that is going to challenge the traditional control of ecclesiastic structures. So here's the three things, and I owe it to Peter today, and I want to shout it out, that I did a, I called 7M for shorthand, which is the seven mission fields And the seven manifestations of the millennium that God wants us to reach into. So, Chuck, you'll, I think you'll appreciate this. From a prophetic perspective, we who are in the end of the age have the power to taste the age to come. And like David, we can see the future. And if we can see it, we have access to bring it into the present. What that means is that at a higher level with seers and prophetic leadership, We can confirm stuff we see and call it into this era now. And I think about this. David, we talk about the key of David. Well, what really was the key of David? People talk about intimacy and worship and this and that and this. I'm going to suggest to you something. The key of David was the fact that he got into a place in the prophetic worship of God where he saw our day and had authority to release it into his own day. He literally time-traveled into another era and brought a jurisdiction from there to this era so that he could have a tabernacle in which he was able to listen to prophetic counsel in an atmosphere like this with the prophetic worship I always experience here and and then the utterances that go with it. David expanded the real estate of Israel 400% more than Saul. He did it by a spiritual strategy that came out of seeing the future. So we're talking about a a radical accelerator, if we can grab it. The other part is he had to actually go into the natural and do something.
1: So now, let me get this right. We're going to look into the future, and we're going to pull the millennial kingdom, the millennial kingdom, into our reality right now. And we're going to establish it right now from the future. We're going to pull it into our kingdom now. Now... When I read the Bible, I thought it was Jesus who was going to return in the future and in his timing and the father's timing was going to set up the millennial kingdom. So like, how do we reconcile that? Well, they do have a way to do that. And we'll get into that in just a second. But before we get into how they're going to reconcile that, I do want to talk about this establishing apostolic centers real quick. I don't want to skip over that because he says it's a redefinition of church and then it's going to disrupt the current ecclesiastical leadership structure. And why is that? Well, because the biblical apostles, they have to have certain pedigrees to them, right? Biblically, an apostle, they have to have seen the resurrected Christ, and they have to be commissioned by the resurrected Christ. And because that was a very specific group of people limited to 2,000 years ago, the church is not led by physical apostles anymore. They're led by the elders and the pastors who follow the teachings of Jesus and his apostles as written in the Bible. And that's the current ecclesiastical leadership structure that they want to disrupt because they believe that if they can establish apostolic training centers like IHOP or Bethel Church, or even better yet, if they can convert existing churches that were once operating biblically into like spiritual beachheads, they can conquer more physical territory. Then they can foster an environment where prophetic praise, prayers, and visions can happen. And people can have heavenly visions. And when they have heavenly visions, they can go up to heaven. They can talk with a quote-unquote resurrected Jesus. And this quote-unquote resurrected Jesus can give them commissions. Now see how they're skirting this apostle thing? See how they're kind of working in this new apostle thing by saying, you know what? Well, we were in this apostolic uh, center and where all this prophetic soaking was going on. And I had an out of body experience and I saw Jesus just like Paul saw Jesus and I was commissioned just like Paul was commissioned. Really? But I guess like through these apostles, They can do something that Paul never even could do. I mean, like, these apostles can see into the future through the spirit realm, confirm what we see, and manifest it into the physical realm, as Lance says. We can engage in something called quantum prayer. Or as Prepare the Way Ministry puts it on their website, we are preparing every bloodline and family for eternal destiny, the tribe quantum a tribe of Neos-era quantum worship warriors, eternally wired, globally connected quantum worship, which is the release of the molecular wave vibrations of the sound and light of our essential state of being, in the progressive order of all the unfolding of natural creation, which began with the eternal spoken words of Elohim, who said, Let there be light. The eternal realm is established as the source of power for all life in the natural realm. Both realms are forever united by what scientists and the Bible reveal as the quantum dimension, a dimension of power and energy from which all matter as the substance of the natural realm is formed. The earth, as a result, is the place where the parallel eternal and natural worlds were made to function together in complete harmony, made clear by the statement of the Son when he said, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Luke 11:2. Tribe Quantum is a community of worship warriors who function in this eternal reality. Can I get a scripture on that? Please, someone send me one. You know, the scripture that talks about the release of the molecular wave vibrations of the sound and the light as an operation or gift of the Holy Ghost. But Sometimes some of this New Age stuff just goes right over my head, man. Because I tell you what, man, I can find a bunch of New Age writings on sound waves and light vibrations and crystals and all kinds of other junk. I mean, like, and we're going to get into the New Age side of this in a couple of seconds. But like this quantum worship. I don't know how biblical it is. And Lance also mentions another thing. He's like, and this is the key of David. The key of David is this ability to use prophetic prayer and worship to see into heaven and to pray and proclaim and birth into existence events of the Bible that only Jesus can do like manifesting the millennial kingdom or as Mike Bickle teaches at IHOP to pray down the judgments of God during the tribulation. I kid you not. He actually teaches that at IHOP, they're going to be able to break the seals and pray down the judgments of God during the tribulation. This is from the Key of David website. It's an NAR website that catalogs the complete teachings and the writings of Mike Bickle and IHOP so they can be found for easy study. In a post entitled, Mike Bickle on the book of Revelation, Mike Bickle writes, The most important book for the generation. There is no more important book for the generation in which the Lord will return than this action plan. That's why we're teaching on it. It's ever so simple. 12 sessions, 22 chapters. You almost cannot quantify that as teaching on it. The book is so much deeper than that. I sometimes hesitate. I am saying the book of Revelation. I look up and say, Lord, you know that I know that I'm hardly teaching on it, as long as you guys know that. This little outline is just to get you a little bit familiar with it, so you can spend hours and hours studying it. And It's really straightforward. It means what it says. It says what it means. There's more comprehensive teachings on my website. One of the great things we need to shift our perspective or our paradigm of is the great tribulation. Now, anytime someone's talking about the Bible and says that we need to shift our perception of the Bible or a paradigm of something written in the Bible, that's like something you need to look out for. I'm just warning you in advance here. Tribulation is not something done to us, he writes. It is something released through us against the Antichrist. Really? The primary theme of the tribulation, the primary theme of the book of Revelation is the judgment of God against the Antichrist Empire released by the praying church under Jesus' leadership. Wait now. Like, I read in the book of Revelation the account John gives in the throne room in Revelation 5, right? The scrolls come out, it's got seven seals on it, it's presented, and everybody around the throne, they're sad, they're upset, they're mourning, they're worried. Because, like, no one is found worthy or has the power to open up and release the judgments of God. Verse 5 in Revelation says, And no man, no man in earth, neither in under the earth, was able to open up the book or to look thereon. No man in heaven or on earth or under the earth are able to open the book, to release the judgments in the scrolls. They're like, it's not going to get open because no one can do it. Until the Lamb of God, or Jesus the Son of God, comes forward and takes the scrolls, and he alone opens up the scrolls. Now, that's pretty cut and dry. That's pretty black and white, right? But Bickle actually has the audacity to say, we need to shift our perception on this. We need to change our paradigm of the Great Tribulation here. So so how is this end-time shift going to redefine the tribulation and the second coming of the Son of God? Well, they do it by redefining how Christ comes, right? And who the end times Christ is and how he will manifest. And this is where the manifest sons of God come in. Now notice this, manifest sons, plural, of God. So what are the manifest sons of God? Is this doctrine a biblical view on Christ's return, or is it a New Age view that will prepare the world to receive a New Age Christ? Let's dig a little deeper here. So remember Bob Jones, right? He's the so-called apostle and prophet of God who was at the head of the Kansas City prophets before he got into trouble, kind of by asking women to take off all their clothes so that you know they could stand naked before the Lord to receive a proper word of prophecy. Well, apparently, he goes away after this moral failure. He's still kind of working behind the scenes, but he has a near-death experience. And when he has this near-death experience, he sees God. God kind of like forgives him. It's all water on the bridge. God restores him and then gives him an option. He's like, you can either stay or you can go back. And on 8808... A fully restored Bob Jones is speaking at Heritage International Ministry Retreat Center. And he recounts this event of his near-death experience. And he says, quote, 33 years ago, I stood before the Lord and I looked into his eyes. To be honest with you, I didn't want to come back because it had been so hard. But he asked me, he told me, if you go back, you'll see the greatest wave of all time in evangelism. I'm going to bring over a billion youth into myself. Now, these youth leaders are going to be between 25 and 40, getting ready for a birthing of youth beyond anything you've ever seen. And what's after now is the 25 to 40s, which are harvesters. So get ready. Things have changed. The new breed, let's get behind them. They're going to bring the youth behind them. It's a change of times. The torch is being transferred from the old generation to this 25 to 40. This is the new breed. Recently, the Lord spoke to me and said, I'm coming in my people. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'm coming in my people. As you begin to grow into the likeness of Christ, you're going to begin to partake of the divine nature. And once you begin to grow up in that way, you'll continue to mature until you look like Christ all over the world. Jesus was one person. Now get ready for Jesus's all over the world. Now notice how he said Jesus's as the plural form of Jesus. Okay? In case you didn't get that implication, that's how. We bring in the Millennial Kingdom. That's how we open up the seals and the scrolls. We are Jesuses. We're little Jesuses running around on the earth. We are Jesus. Jesus is in us, the hope of glory. We become Christ. We are actually manifestations of the sons of God here on the earth. And and in case that's not bold enough for you, here's a more direct, concise quote from Earl Pollock. And he says, Christ is in us. This is God's continuing incarnation. Now the incarnation was when the second person of the Trinity came to earth and was born of a virgin and was incarnate into human flesh. These guys are teaching that God is continuing the incarnation now and that incarnation is Christ's body. The incarnation of Christ today. Earl Pollock goes on and says the mystery which has been hidden but is now revealed to his saints, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery of this generation is Christ in us. We never understood that mystery fully. We pray to a God beyond the clouds and heavenly places when Christ is in us. The hope of glory is not in the heavenlies. The hope of glory is on the earth. Every departed saint is gathered, waiting to see how many of us are going to receive the understanding and bring forth Christ from the heavenlies. Unquote. Man, it's heretical. Like, we have the power to bring forth Christ from the heavenlies and manifest him here on the earth among us. That's a whole nother second coming. It gets worse. On May twenty eighth, 2008, Todd Bentley of the Lakeland Revival, the Adulterer, and the Holy Ghost Headbutter preached this. Tonight is a crossing over, and we have a moment, says the Lord, where we can labor and travail until Christ is formed in you. I feel as if we gave it a big push that we could literally form Christ in you. I'm talking about a maturing of what God has placed on the inside of your spirit. It's going to come out your birth canal. It's going to come out of your womb because there is a labor and there's a travailing going on in the spirit. We're going back into travail right now until Christ is formed. God promised a day when heaven and earth must retain him until the restoration of all things. Heaven will hold back the coming of Jesus Christ until his sons and daughters come into full maturity. It's called the manifestation of the sons of God. Let Christ be formed in maturity. Let the full man, let the fullness of God come forth and let that womb open tonight. Let there be a great birthing, Now the mystery can be solved. Now these mysteries can be reconciled. How do we establish the millennial kingdom that only Jesus Christ, the son of God, can establish? We become the manifestations of Jesus or the sons of God on earth. We become little Jesuses running around. That's how we birth the kingdom, according to them. That's how we release the judgments of God on the earth. Now, you can wrap this up in Christian terms, but that's not in the Bible. It's in the New Age. And here's the thing. The New Age movement also uses biblical terms, and they do it to deceive Christians they redefine things like like Christ isn't Jesus, it's a consciousness, it's an ascended spirit, right? And this new age stuff goes way, way back. Alice Bailey, she's a world famous occult New Ager. She wrote a lot about the coming New Age Christ. She wrote that he would manifest himself and his Christ consciousness mystically through his followers, and that he would have the ability to manifest through many people at one time. So now they would become little Christ. It's exactly almost the exact same thing. And ultimately from amongst those many people who were little Christ would come a world teacher or one person who would progress further in his enlightenment. And then he would become the ultimate Christ that will lead all the others. So, we have all these little Jesuses running around. We have all these little Christ running around. But like one person would get it, and he would progress spiritually even better. And then this would be the ultimate manifestation of Christ, or the returned Christ. Now I'm going to share with you some quotes from her writings and some other New Age leaders. And when I share these, the similarities between the New Apostolic Reformation teachings of the latter reign manifest sons of God teachings, they're going to be almost identical to what we heard just a few moments ago in the NAR people's definition of how Jesus manifests himself and how he's manifest in this world and how he'll return. Alice Bailey writes in her book from Bethlehem to Calvary, the initiations of Jesus quote, we can produce as a human race and give birth to the next kingdom in this nature, which Christ called the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of souls, the kingdom of spiritual lives, and herein uniquely Christ emerges. Bailey then calls this the outpouring of the Christ principle, the second coming. J.D. Dubois amends this and writes in the book Christ, His Reappearance and the Avatar of Synthesis, the following. Quote, The Christ, when he comes into incarnation, there's that word again, will most likely project himself into many parts and be where he wants to be. This is called the law of divisibility, a term used in Agni Yoga, which means a highly developed spirit, one who is able to contact simultaneously various people in various locations. For example, a master can be seen in various groups at the same time. He can even be in different planes serving and teaching on different levels to meet various needs of the people. He can do different jobs in different places at one time, unquote. Exactly what the NAR people are teaching. Next, I'm going to share a 1919 quote by Alice Bailey. She says the church movement, like all else, is but a temporary expedient and serves as a transient resting place for the evolving life. Eventually, there will appear the church universal, and its definite outlines will appear towards the close of the 20th century. This church will be nurtured into activity by the Christ and his disciples when the outpouring of the Christ principle, the true second coming, has been accomplished. I set no date for this Advent, but the time will not be long, Unquote. So she's like, this: the church itself is changing, it's transient, it's ever-evolving until it becomes the universal church. But she's advocating more than that. She's advocating a radical redefinition of church and its mission. Sound familiar again? to manifest Christ simultaneously through his followers and birth the kingdom of God on earth. Now, if you're like, Hey man, how come this sounds almost like word for word to this Lance Walnow and Paul Kane stuff? Well, that's exactly why it sounds that way. Like they are going to do it. How are they going to do it? They're going to do it by mystical spirit journeys into the future, quantum vibrations and whatnot. And Alice Bailey Culver's, that too. In one of her writings, she writes, quote, The Christian church, in its many branches, can serve as a John the Baptist, a voice crying out in the wilderness, a nucleus throughout the world, where illumination may be accomplished. The church must show a wide tolerance. The church is a teaching fast factor should take great basic doctrines and show their true inner spiritual significance by shattering the old forms in which they are expressed and held. The primary work of the church is to teach and teach ceaselessly, preserving the outer appearances in order to reach the many who are accustomed to church usages. Teachers must be trained. Bible knowledge must be spread. The sacraments must be mystically interpreted and the power of the church to heal must be demonstrated, unquote. Dude, she's talking about infiltrating the church. Okay. And using the church and the doctrines of the church and the terms of the church to bring in new age doctrines to deceive people. She wrote a score, score, scores of books on this subject to serve as manuals on how to infiltrate churches. That was like one of her main, main key things. And she had been putting into practice these arts of infiltrating churches and her followers have been putting her strategy into practice over the last 70 years or so. And one of the main ways that her book teaches how to do these sort of things is to send spells and words and proclamations and prophecies, and occult spiritual influences, and their own New Age revelations towards Christians and towards churches, in a bid to get them to move in line in the same spirit they do to them. This is a blessing. It's an impartation to Christians. They do so in the belief that they are helping to impart to Christians a superior form of spirituality, which they call mysticism new age teacher Matthew Fox wrote in his book, the coming of the cosmic Christ, this without mysticism, there will be no deep ecumenicism, no unleashing of the power of wisdom from all the world's religious traditions. The promise of ecumenicism, the coming together of religions has been thwarted because religions have not been relating at the level of mysticism the western church appears to have nothing to offer on a mystical level because its religious traditions are unaware of their mystical heritage unquote so now in order for the church to move away from being in the narrow way in order for a church to become an ecumenical church the new agers are like hey you need to use new age mysticism If this new age church is to be a modern day John the Baptist, according to Bailey, who moved in mystical power, then the NAR is teaching this. I mean, on February 24th, 2011, Bob Jones is speaking at Bethel Church and he prophesies over the people in attendance. You are called to be a mystic generation. One of Mike Bickle's signature teachings is this forerunner generation. That's why this 24-7 house of prayer exists. They are one of these apostolic centers. They're building a tabernacle of praise, a Davidic place where the keys of David operate. And they're doing what Lance talked about. They're providing an atmosphere for the prophetic to be manifest on the earth. What they're doing is what Bailey prescribes in her writings. They are sending their mystical prayers. They're sending their prophetic proclamations. They're sending their dark sentences out through the earth as a quantum spiritual force. They are speaking to nations. They're basically terraforming the spiritual atmosphere, making it habitable for this forerunner generation. Now do you understand why this is the fastest growing movement in the world? Because there are spiritual forces attached to this. You know, it's like we who have the truth of God's word in our churches, we rarely have time for prayer. And we almost never have weekly prayer meetings. And if they do, like, they're poorly attended by, like, just a handful of people. And in this hour, the church needs to be packed. We need to be praying against this stuff. We need to be praying for the Holy Spirit to fill us with power and boldness to preach the gospel. We need to be gauging in real spiritual warfare to shut some of this stuff down, to break some of this stuff down. But, but, we don't. But there are hundreds and hundreds of these apostolic training centers around the world. And they're 24-7 offering up mystical New Age prayers. They're calling into being things with their dark sentences, as the book of Daniel puts it. And just because something is false, just because they're operating in the false, doesn't mean there isn't a spiritual power and authority behind it. Because Satan is still the god of this age. Like we heard at the beginning of this episode that 369 million people are influenced or are a part of the New Apostolic Reformation. That's a pretty staggering number. But it's even more staggering because Mike Bickle prophesied it. He did in 1980. He not only prophesied it, but he actively began praying for it. This is what he said in 1980. This end times forerunner army would have 300,000 enlistment notices for the next generation. This 300,000 would be the main leadership over a billion converts in the earth. They would bear a distinct anointing. And they, they, they called forth it. 1980 prophesied that this 300 some million people are going to show up. And that's what's showing up because they're taking these demonic acts seriously while the churches hit this news button repeatedly. What we bear is sleepiness. What they bear is a distinct mystical anointing. And what's this distinct anointing we're talking about that Mike Bickle's talking about? Well, it's a specific anointing that the forerunner generation is going to move in. It's going to flow in. It's going to have power in. And we can see this. All these supernatural schools of ministry that are popping up all around the world, all around the United States, right? I'll give you a good example of one. If you actually visit newmystics.com, you're going to land on John Crowder's website. And his ministry is the Thuns of Thunder. And he operates an impartation training school slash workshop where he goes city to city country by country and he teaches people how they can be new christian mystics in a series of three days this is a quote from his website quote our mystical school is intensive a three-day course with in-depth instructions activation and hands-on impartation with john crowder these deeper spiritual courses in contemplative prayer, supernatural Christianity, are geared for a smaller group environment with limited registration to foster an atmosphere of intimacy, personal prophecy, and vigorous impartation. There will be ample time for questions and answers, with sessions running 68 hours each day and mornings free for prayer, soaking, and reflection. In the courses, you will gain a grace perspective on operating in trances, raptures, and aesthetic prayer, experiencing physical phenomena of mysticism, activation in creative miracle signs and wonders, understanding our access to new creation realities, a historical grid of miracle workers and mystics, activation in the seer realm, prophecy, receiving open heavens and revelatory understanding, access and manifesting the glory realm, unquote. Now, if that's not throwing up tons of red flags left and right, then dude, someone stole all your red flags. Now, here's the thing. Not only is the the occult people are all like, well, we got to bring back in the mysticism into the church. They go around training people to be new Christian mystics. And then on top of it, you're going to gain all of this from a grace perspective. You're going gain, gain to a, gain a grace perspective on operating in trances, in raptures, in aesthetic prayer. Um, you're going to gain a grace perspective on experiencing physical manifestations of mysticism. Like, what, what was a grace perspective on mystical acts? Well, since you won't find those shenanigans in the Bible, let's let's recall what New Age infiltrator Bailey taught. She taught, for illumination to be accomplished, the church must show a wide tolerance. You see, there's a whole hyper-grace side to all this teaching and a form of universalism that John Crowder is also into. He's an outspoken supporter of of the theology of the shack. He's a great friend of the author and he's a kind of like a N a R reinterpretation of the gospel of grace and the atonement of Christ. He has some wacky atonement of Christ stuff. And his basic thing is why not get drunk in the Holy ghost? Why not party up in Jesus? Jesus has everything under control. If you're worried and stressed out about what's going on in the world, you shouldn't be because it's all gonna work out in the end and, and everybody's gonna get saved and nobody's gonna to go to hell and everything's on lockdown and if you really truly believed it and if you really had true faith, then toke up the Holy Ghost. That's illumination. And for illumination to be accomplished, I guess the church has to show a wide tolerance, according to Alice Bailey. It's it's actually kind of scary. Um but then again, like all of this invasion is scary. Because like it doesn't happen overnight. It's like these false doctrines, these new age practices, they creep into churches because pastors who are supposed to be shepherding and protecting the sheep from the wolves are instead doing what Alice Bailey said, showing a wide tolerance. They're not shutting down false doctrines. They're not, they're not calling out or naming names of people that are trying to, to hurt the souls of their congregation. But instead they're like, Who am I to judge this other person's ministry? That's what's happening, that wide tolerance. And as a result, this church landscape and the very terms of our church and the way that our churches are run and who they're run by and who's in control of our churches have been radically redefined. And now we're believing all kinds of crazy stuff because we've let all this crazy stuff in because we've been way too tolerant of it. Barna, the research, the Christian research polling place, just released a new study this year, and it shows that only 17% of Christians who consider their faith important and attend church regularly actually have a biblical worldview. Furthermore, Barna found that many Christians strongly agree with worldviews that blatantly contradict. Bible teachings, or in other words, what many believers are actually believing are new age lies that will lead to a dangerous state of ecumenicism, because, you know, the church must show that wide tolerance. 38% of these believers are sympathetic to some Muslim teachings. 54% resonate with postmodern views. 36% accept ideas associated with Marxism. 29% believe ideas based on secularism. And finally, 61% agree with ideas rooted in new age spirituality. And to nobody's surprise, millennials and Generation Xers are the most likely to fall for all of these deceptions. Our biblical worldview has become a new age worldview. This infiltration is 61% complete. But you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, BDK. Like, I'm going to disagree with you on this one. I'm going to call shenanigans on you. Because you're like, you know, the millennials and the Gen Xers, like, they're falling for this deception, it seems like right now that they're kind of like the most on fire. They're super on fire. They're joining all the big churches. They're part of the Jesus culture and like all that worship music, right? It's the number one selling music in all the Christian entertainment industry, right? And and they're listening to Christian music. So like obviously these people are on fire for Jesus, these youngsters, Well, Jesus Culture, Bethel Music, Hillsong, Forerunner Music, they're all music ministries that have new apostolic direct influences on them. And the style of the music itself is actually brainwashing and hypnotizing an entire generation through New Age means and music. The music is actually hurting them more than helping them. It's actually part of the... Problem And and this music component for the young people is a huge part of this, man. I mean, like we talked about IHOP in the Forerunner generation. Well, their recording artists on their Forerunner label are made up of worship leaders like Misty Edwards who guide the audience through repetitive music meant to open themselves up to spiritual truths. I see in this movement, you're to soak in the presence of God for hours while the music is playing And its job is to affect the mind because they twist the scripture that says that the natural man cannot receive the things of the spirit. So they believe that they have to bypass the natural mind and speak directly to the spirit. But that is not what the passage is talking about. It's saying that an unsaved, unregenerate man can't receive spiritual truth because the Holy Spirit doesn't live in him. It has nothing to do with contemplative prayer. It has nothing to do with altered states of consciousness. It has nothing to do with turning off your mind so you can receive the things of the Spirit because you already have the Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit's leading and teaching you. But see, that's how they twist it. They're like, you have to turn off the natural mind so you can receive the Spirit. And if you're not familiar with this type of theology, if you're not type familiar with this type of music or this type of style of music, this soaking music, this hypnotic trance music, This mystical music that Misty Edwards leads, because she's like the leading worship leader at the IHOP. They have like something that's called the One Thing Conference, which is their major youth conference. It's the biggest conference of the year. And you can see, you can notice the type of music that's being played here before the speakers come on. There is built-in hypnotic commands blatantly in some of this music. I'm going to play a clip for you, and you're going to catch it right away. This blatant, blatant hypnotic commands and suggestions worked into the music.
5: Listen to the rhythm, the rhythm of heaven. 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 Listen to the rhythm, the rhythm. Of Of heaven, listen to the rhythm, the rhythm of heaven, listen to the rhythm, the rhythm of heaven, listen to the rhythm, the rhythm of heaven. Listen to the rhythm. 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 The rhythm of heaven, listen to the rhythm. The rhythm of heaven Listen to the rhythm The rhythm of heaven Listen to the rhythm The rhythm of heaven We wanna hear your heartbeat 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 heartbeat. Listen to the rhythm The rhythm
1: now, here's the thing. I've been to IHOP like twice, and this is the type of trance music that's being played live in the prayer rooms where they have services. And while you're praying, I mean, it's just you're soaking in this music. It really messes with your head. It really clouds your judgment. And then, you know, if you're like going into another room to get prophesied over after you've been soaking in this music, like you'll pretty much believe anything they tell you. And then like they'll have these like Friday night services and these Saturday night services that are more like church services. And this is like when Misty usually gets up and she'll play this type of music that you heard for about an hour or so like an hour to an hour and a half before Mike Bickle even gets up to speak his message. It's like, why do people need to be hypnotized before the apostles of God speak? I mean, if these people are filled with the Holy spirit then the Holy spirit should be able to like impress upon people, the truths of what's going on. Why do they have to work people up and implant all these suggestions in people? Why do they have to hypnotize people by earthly means? If these people are filled spirit, filled apostles. Now maybe BDK, it was just kind of coincidental that this, that this pattern was going on, that she was telling people to listen to heartbeats and to breathe crazy and stuff like that. Like you're not a hypnosis dude. You're not a doctor. You're not someone that's trained in this. How can you say that it's a form of hypnosis? You're just a podcaster. Well, I reached out to a clinically trained hypnotherapist and I sent her this clip that you just listened to. She watched it, and she wrote me back. Let's see what this professional in the field observed. She writes, My name is Michelle Cassandras, and I am a certified clinical hypnotherapist. I received my training from Hypnosis Motivational Institute, which is the Harvard of hypnosis colleges in Los Angeles, California. I have viewed the video you sent me showing Misty Edwards from IHOP leading the worship team. And these are some of my observations based on my background in hypnosis. I will start by saying that there is no doubt whatsoever in my professional opinion that the techniques being used here are unambiguously hypnotic in nature. Among the five dominant laws of suggestibility The three most fundamental laws are at play here. The law of repetition, the law of association, and the law of dominance. Among all the obvious neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, techniques being exercised such as rhythm, pattern, and pacing and leading. Keep these in mind as we break down and examine what is happening here. We know that music has the ability to induce trance states and these elements are common in a lot of popular music often people repeat lyrics from popular songs without even realizing it beyond this the music as well as the imagery displayed in this IHOP video is blatantly intentional in its objective to induce a trance state it has the intent to get the crowd to focus on and keep the main verses in their mind It demonstrates the NLP technique of rhythm and patter, which can be done audibly or physically to deepen one state in order to minimize resistance and to firmly implant suggestions. The rhythm and melody are obviously highly repetitive as the lyrics, or in this case is what we would call them the patter phrase, and the resulting brainwaves are a mix of alpha and gamma. The alpha opens the subconscious. The gamma burns the suggestion into the memory. People like the Tibetan monks realized that gamma is the energizer and it puts intensity into motivation, suggestions, and mindfulness. The major principle of hypnotic induction is awareness of the body. Turning the attention inwards to the systematic functions like breathing, and the calculation is the very first thing that is done in classic induction. The hypnotist creates a hypnosis by taking control of these functions by directing that awareness. So here we see the music start slow, and then the rhythm becomes faster, and she commands, hear the heartbeat. And the increasing tempo of the drum beat simulates the heartbeat. That's what's called pacing and leading. She is now pacing the primary function of the automatic nervous system, i.e. the heart, to exert control or command of each individual's physiological and mental state. Now, hypnosis can be defined as an overload of message, units disorganizing the critical mind, triggering a stress response in the body, leading to escape in the hypnotic state. The connection is not difficult to apprehend. She is making people feel something. Add to that the dark environment and the laser lights to elicit overload. This is induction. This is the framework for implanting what suggestions are to follow. Another fundamental hypnotic technique can be clearly observed in this clip, which is to embed direct suggestions within an inferential framework or atmosphere. So she crafts her suggestion in the form of a direct command. Listen to the rhythm of heaven. However, what is the rhythm of heaven? Does she know what that sounds like? Or is she a pop artist knowingly placing her audience into a trance for some other purpose? Whether intentional or not, her process does take one into trance. What she wants the crowd to do is less easily known from this one clip, but chances are good that it will be followed by teachings from their belief systems, which would arguably be suggestive plantings. You would call this a paradigm if this is how this service is being held. Rhythmatic trance and pacing and leading techniques have been used for centuries. Chanting is one such form of trans induction that has been used practically in all religions, for example, shamanism, Islam, and Hinduism. The logic is always the same. Repetitive chanting will make people more ready and willing to adopt suggestions for others, especially when there is psychological stress or emotional buildup. Gurus and meditation groups often use chanting as a key component of their teachings. Chanting in groups can be especially hypnotic. It opens the mind to groupthink and to suggestions and introductions of a charismatic leader or a person on stage under the spotlights is perceived as the leader and has one-upsmanship. Misty Edwards is leading the audience here who is already likely familiar with her and suggestible to her. The process of cult and mass indoctrination may involve repeated inductions of trance-like states of consciousness very similar to hypnosis. The use of consciousness-altering techniques like repetitive, continuous chanting, meditations, and praying within a group ritual are some of the methods employed by cults to produce these altered states of awareness. So I would safely conclude that for all intents and purposes, what is happening here is a form of group Hypnosis. The modern leaders in the field of hypnosis and NLP have, for the most part, identified what works and systemized it, creating repeatable patterns to be easily taught and applied. Whether that practitioner utilizes these tools for well intentioned influencing or diabolical manipulations is a matter of that person's moral character. I firmly believe trans manipulation has no place in churches. However, it has been used in many religions for centuries, and being able to identify it is important. My personal opinion is that it seems that all these people and groups involved in this are aspiring to contact a higher power through these altered states, using the induction as a springboard, which is backwards if we look at this theologically. We need not alter our minds in order to come to Christ. We seek to be in his presence with the intent to be filled with his spirit. And the change in brainwave state during this time in prayer is simply a consequence of the process. It should not be the catalyst. Wow. I mean, like that's pretty much proof in the pudding. These guys caught red handed hand in the cookie jar. Totally. Michelle, thank you for your expertise in this this area. Thank you for shedding light on this for us. I, I really appreciate it. That's my phone-a-friend for, for the episode there. So um, there you have it, man. Is this Holy Spirit or is this New Age spiritual manipulation? Why whip people up into altered states of consciousness in the flesh? I'll tell you why. Because they can't do it in the Holy Ghost. Because the Holy Ghost is nowhere near this. And I say this as a spirit-filled Pentecostal Christian. And I know that there are people that are going to be like, BDK, stop trying to sound like a Cestationalist. Well, Cestationalism is not the issue. Like it or not, the cessationists are the minority in this equation. As a matter of fact, most of the historic denominations now accept healing and the gifts of the Spirit. The issue is, Here isn't whether these gifts are for today or if the Holy Spirit is still moving today. It's are these new gifts? Are these extra biblical gifts? Are these mystical gifts? Are these powers not mentioned anywhere in the Bible? This is not about whether the Spirit still moves today. This is about whether we should go beyond the boundaries of scriptures and beyond what Jesus and his disciples experienced because if we do and when we do this phenomenon becomes even more extreme than what you heard in the Misty Edwards clip and it becomes even more obvious what's what's fueling it take a listen to this Now, what does that sound like to you? I shared this video with Phil Baker, and he said it sounded like an early morning voodoo ritual he heard in Africa while he was on his missionary trip. And then he realized that this was the beginning of a worship service at Rick Joyness Church. Now, in this video, you see Rick come up, and Rick starts the service, inviting God to move amongst them. Then the worship leader comes up and says this Tory who's part of the team is going to release something from the Lord to the congregation. Now in the new Apostolic reformation, this is called a prophetic impartation. This is when the spirit moves on a person and prophesies through a person and their very words can change the atmosphere of the room. And he's like, when Tori comes up, when this release happens, it's going to be like a starter's gun going off. And, And what you can't see, because this is just audio from a video clip is how this woman is releasing this message and this prophetic impartation. She's being held up by force by three people. It looks like she's in a bar instead of a church. You know, like at the end of the night when you've had way too much to drink and you're trying to get up and you're staggering and your three friends are trying to hold hold you up and keep you standing up so that you kind of just walk out of the place, but everybody's struggling to do so because you're weighing down everybody else? Well, that's kind of what's going on in this video. That's how whacked out this chick is. And then she starts bringing forth this word and she begins chanting all kinds of like oohs and ahs and begins violently shaking like a person who's gone into some sort of crazy voodoo trance. And it even sounds like she's in some sort of crazy voodoo trance. And and when you're listening to this, once again, pay attention to the repeating of the words and the phrases and the repetitive patter patterns and the rhythm of the music.
5: So, Lord, move among us.
1: All right. Tori's got something she's gonna release, and when this releases, it's gonna be like a starting gun for the ministry time. So those of you who like ministry, go ahead and stand up. Get in the middle section. Youth, children, those who've been touched by the fire,
0: prepare to minister. Yeah, he's here. here.
5: Two days ago, I saw Jesus
0: opening himself up and walking in our midst. (laughs) Today, the phrase that keeps going in my mind and in my heart is that my deep calls
5: out to his deep. My deep calls out to his deep. (laughs) My deep goes out to your deep, Jesus. My deep goes out to your deep. My deep goes out to his deep. My deep goes out to his deep.
1: Unsettling. And what's even more unsettling is that she has this vision of Jesus cracking himself open, walking amongst their mist. Now, you know who biblically had a vision of Jesus walking amongst the mist of the church is? John the Apostle. He sees Jesus, falls down in holy, still awe, reverence, worship at his feet. Like when he sees Jesus walking amongst the mist of the church, Did he need to be held up by two or three people because of the the shaking and the uncontrollable screaming and the voodoo chanting? When John saw Jesus, was voodoo drums playing? Was chanting accompanying it in the background? Were the angels being crazy? Or did he just faithfully and calmly record the vision in his writing? And writing, by the way, is a process that you need control of your motor skills and intellect to do. So... I don't think he was acting all whacked out when he saw Jesus actually walking amongst the churches. And if Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy, like does he need a starting gun to go off to talk to his people? Does he need hypnotic trance or voodoo music to first shift or change the atmosphere so that prophetic soaking can begin? Like, like answer me this man. Like how many times in scriptures did Jesus go to perform a miracle or cast out a devil And then when he gets there, he's like, now, now, hold on, wait a second here. First, before I can heal you or cast this devil out of you, we must access the quantum dimension because that's where the power and the energy is stored. And we need to pull that first into the natural realm. Okay, boys, start changing the atmosphere. James and John, get out the bongos, put the name Sons of Thunder to use. I know, I know that you're in pain. I know that you need healing and deliverance, but like, I first, I got to open myself up, crack my heart open a little bit. I need to lead you to a place where you can receive it. Now track with me here. Listen. Listen to the, the rhythm of heaven. Hear the heartbeat. Hear the heartbeat. Listen to the rhythm of heaven. And when the bongos start playing, it's going to be like a starting gun going out. Just listen to the rhythm. Hear my heartbeat. We'll do some chanting for about an hour, and then... I'll pray for your healing or possibly cast out your devil. Until then, just sit back, enjoy the ride, turn off your mind, and soak it in, baby! Can you find me a chapter and verse on that happening in the New Testament? If you can find that scenario, please email it to me because I'd love to see it. And I'm not trying to be facetious or snarky here. This should be a sticking point. This should be something that we're deadly serious about. I mean, like, how do you defend extra-biblical New Age mystical practices from Scripture, when by definition they're extra-biblical and not in Scripture. How do you preach a sermon on transferring the anointing and all of this manifest sons of God stuff when these terms and these words aren't even there? Well, you put them in there. You get a Bible, and you change the Bible And then you add all your terms and all your New Apostolic shenanigans into your translation. That's how you do it. And one of the most dangerous developments in the New Apostolic Reformation is their forthcoming translation of the Bible called the Passion Translation. So far, only key books have been translated and made public. But soon, they're going to have their own real version. And, And why is this dangerous? Why is having a new apostolic Reformation, like approved Bible, dangerous? Well, every Christian cult, eventually, if they're bad enough, gets their own translation of the Bible. And they do it so that they can lend authority to their beliefs. The Jehovah Witnesses have a translation. The Mormons have a translation. The Catholics have a translation, and so on and so forth. So if you're going to be the fastest growing religious movement in the world, why not get on board why not get on the stick? Why not have your very own preferred translation, right? Now, I'm not going to turn this into uh, which translation should you use segment or you can only use this translation argument. Instead, I just want to look at this translation. I want to look at who's translating it. And that's right. I said who is translating it. Because like 80% of the times, the most legit Bible translations are done by like a group of trained Bible scholars who are experts in biblical languages and they review each other's work and they counterbalance each other and they work side by side so it doesn't become a one man show or tainted by one man's doctrine. So like this translation though isn't done that way. He he isn't a he isn't a Hebrew scholar, he's not a Greek scholar, he's not an Aramaic scholar. Um he's just a dude. that's getting this done by Holy Ghost download, basically, as you'll hear later. And this one man is Brian Simons, and he's one of the lead apostles in this new apostolic reformation. Now, this Passion Translation has been endorsed by some of the movement's most influential apostles and prophets, including Bill Johnson from Bethel Church in Redding, California, Che N., formerly of HR Rock Church in Pasadena, California, and of course we got James Gall kicking it into with the Encounters Network. Um, right now you can only buy like key books, but they're gonna do like kind of like a Gideon's Bible sort of thing, where they're gonna have a leather-bound, uh, fully translated New Testament, and in the back of it there's gonna be the Psalms, the Proverbs, and the Song of Songs. So you're actually going to have a good chunk of this. It's something that they can be able to use now in their churches full-time. And if you want to order it, you can go on Amazon. You can pre-order it because it's not out yet. But you'll be able to get it on October 31st, Halloween, this year of 2017. I kid you not. What an interesting day to launch a Bible. But in the meantime, he's translating this Bible, and in his downtime – he goes to conferences where he promotes the Bible and he shares about this Bible and what it's all about. And he does teachings from the Bible to kind of hype the Bible and to get people to pre-order it and whatnot. And so like the first clip you're about to hear, will show you what kind of things that this apostle is into, how he ministers to people and some of the things he believes. This actually comes from a conference and a message from a conference from his own website. And he's teaching on the book, of Song of Songs because that's one of his favorite books in the Bible apparently and he's translated it. And so like here's a little clip of different parts of the this message and some of the stuff that you know he believes in, some of the stuff that he jokes about, some of the stuff that's you know, you know, like things of interest to him as a Bible translator. Cuz you know, you would think that translating a Bible would be a serious undertaking since God's word is holy.
5: And who even the yeah. same person anymore
6: right. yeah. and the Lord is going to set you free tonight what you long for he's going to give you yeah. the kiss of God the divine embrace yeah. yeah. smother me yeah. with kisses go ahead yeah. and say it smother yeah. me say it again he likes it
5: he's going to come tonight
6: now before you sit down the person next to you even if you don't like them they need to have your prayers
5: Amen. so
6: if you're married to them you better like them but whoever that is next to you at the count of three you're going to turn to just one person one-on-one not a group not a whole row just one person and for just a moment I want you to release the blessing of God's fiery love over them. Let it come through you. And those of you online, those of you watching on YouTube, you're going to get blasted. Jehovah smack you is coming into the room. One, two, three. Go ahead and pray. My wife. We know we're called to Long Island because flying here, my wife has a, as a seat companion in first class Delta sat right next to. JB, Justin Bieber, the dude was right next to her and hiding the best he could, but it was him, and uh, that's her. uh you know, I put it on my Facebook, and, and I don't know, a thousand friends said how lucky he was to sit with your wife. I said, that's the truth. That is the truth. But uh, you know, his, his uh, mother is a believer, spirit-filled, went to Toronto, got totally zonked, met Jehovah Zappa, and was filled <laughs> to
2: overflowing.
6: And he has prayed him out of obscurity into a place of, of great prominence. Keep your eyes on him, and uh, you're going to see the Lord uh, win every battle.
1: In the days to come Well,
6: he sees us as his As his beloved bride And we're not only the army of God We're not only sons of God But we're also the bride of Jesus Christ And there's a portion of your spirit That never is satisfied or fulfilled Until you understand That you complete Jesus Christ That it's not good for the son of man To dwell alone that he's chosen a bride, a good partner, the most exquisite friend.
5: Yeah.
6: He actually says, and we'll find out tomorrow, but he actually says at one point, I can't take this anymore. Stop. Stop loving me this way. Stop worshiping like this. Turn your eyes from me. I cannot take this kind of love. You wreck the Son of God.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: How does it feel to conquer the conqueror? That would make you more than a conqueror, wouldn't
5: it?
6: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into it. It begins with the cry for a kiss. The kiss is what you were made for, by the way. You were created by a kiss. Don't look now, but when you breathe into somebody's nostrils, that means kiss, baby. When you kiss somebody, isn't that what happens? Yeah. Don't ask me to demonstrate it, but it's true. When you kiss someone, do it for a few seconds. <coughs> And the more you linger, the more you're going to breathe into her nostrils or his nostrils. And that's what God did. He made a play-doh man, squished him out of the mud.
5: Hallelujah. There
6: he is, and God in my picture, in my mind, and in the book cover I wrote on on Genesis. I, I told the artist, I said, I want I want God stooping down to kiss a pile of dirt.
1: <sighs> well, isn't that neat? Not only did the Toronto blessing inspire Holy Ghost drunkenness, people barking like dogs and being led around on leashes, and the New Apostolic Reformation movement, and the Lakeland revival, and Holy Ghost headbutts, but it gave us Justin Bieber to boot too. Cool. Now, I'm not a Bible translator, so I might be going out on a limb here. I've studied the names of God. I've heard of Jehovah Rohi, the Lord's my shepherd, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord's my healer, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord's my banner before, but somewhere I kind of miss Jehovah smack them and Jehovah jolt you. So I'm starting to feel just a little less comfortable with this Bible now, especially if this guy's like, we complete Jesus. Now, this Bible theology is part of this whole manifest sons of God thing, I get it. But, like, it gets really crazy when he says that we can wreck Jesus. That's that's the new apostolic term for, like, laying people out on the ground and making them bark and hoot and howl and shake and stuff like that. That's their terminology. Like, when that happens, like in that one clip where they're blowing the shofar and the guy's rolling around on the ground and hissing and stuff like that, he's getting wrecked. This dude thinks we can wreck Jesus. He thinks that we can overcome the overcomer, okay? That is a different jesus than the one in the bible so like this translation's super suspect to me right now and if god breathing life into adam means that he was passionately kissing him then does that mean in john 20 where jesus is breathing on the disciples and saying receive ye the holy ghost he was making out with his disciples i mean he didn't say that in the interview but like that's logically what you would conclude right it's the same it's a callback to the genesis account And if that's how God makes out with people by breathing on them, did God breathe on him at any point? It's like, is this how he decided he was going to start this new translation? Well, if you want to answer that question, you can go to a new apostolic reformation promotion show. And this is kind of like a, a show where people come on and they promote their products and they sell their goods and whatnot like that. And, like it's hosted by a messianic Jews name is Sid Roth and I just want to be be clear and upfront about this like not everybody that appears on the show is part of the new apostolic reformation but like 80% of them are like they're the movers and the shakers of the new apostolic reformation and Brian Simmons made an appearance last year on Sid Roth's supernatural this very show in question and he makes a number of startling statements about this so-called translation and These statements that you're about to hear really show how dangerous this translation is going to be. Okay, 2009, Brian Simmons
6: gets a new assignment. What happened? Jesus Christ came into my room. He breathed on me, and he commissioned me. When he breathed on you, I have to ask you this. What did it feel like? It felt like a kiss from heaven. It felt like heaven's wind, the ruach, the breath, the wind of God that came upon me. And he spoke to me and said, I'm commissioning you you to translate translate the Bible Bible into the translation project project that I'm giving you to do. do. And And he promised that that he would help me. And he promised me he would give me secrets of the Hebrew language. Do you believe when he blew on you there was an impartation for revelation i do he breathed on me so that i would do the project and i felt downloads coming instantly i received downloads it was like i got a chip put inside of me i got a connection inside of me to hear him better to understand the scriptures better and hopefully to translate
1: okay How in the world did you get
6: into the library room of heaven? I want to go there. Well, I was actually asleep, and I was taken out of my body, and I was brought into this immense library room. I loved being there, and the Lord came up to me, and he said, Brian, I have brought you here here. to let you take any any two books 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 you you want. And I'm just walking around, but it didn't take long. Before I saw a book That I knew I was to have And then soon I saw another book I knew I was to have But uh, You'll never want me back on the show When I tell you what Happened then What? Well I have to tell you the truth I saw a third book And I knew the Lord told me I could only take two And in heaven Whatever you think Is put out over the loudspeaker Everyone hears it Your thoughts are broadcasted so here's what I hear coming out of the loudspeaker, and it's my own thoughts. How can I steal this book? <laughs> and then I said, oh no, I'm shoplifting on God. <laughs> I felt so ashamed that I, but I knew if I could take this book, there was this book so, if I could just take this book back with me to the natural realm, it would trigger awakening in all the nations of the earth, it would bring the, it would make the name of Jesus famous on the, in the world. But Jesus came to me and said, Brian, I cannot let you take this book. Brian, I can't let and he you looked take at me in the eyes with love that melted me. And he said, book. you are not ready for that book. Then he promised, but I will, I will bring, bring you, back you back one day. And I will, give you, and that I will give you that book. What was the title? Written on the cover of the book was John 22. Uh, but there's only 21 chapters in John. What's this 22? Well, John 22 Go back to John 14:12, and you'll see that there is a greater works generation. The works that I do, you will do even greater works than these. I believe the John 22 generation will be a people
1: that do the greater works of Jesus. So let me get this right. He claims that Jesus appears to him, commissions him, and then breathes on him. And then he gets a heavenly download so that he could unlock the Hebrew and the Aramaic scriptures fully. Now there are some crazy dangerous translations out there. Like Eugene Peterson's the message and whatnot. It's making a lot of news. Like he's coming out in support of the gay marriage and whatnot. And people are like, man, maybe we shouldn't be reading the Eugene Peterson's message translation. And I'm not down with that. I don't think you should be reading it, but like even Eugene Peterson isn't like, yo, I just went to heaven after Jesus started kissing on me and then I was in heaven and I tried shoplifting an extra biblical chapter of the Bible that doesn't even exist. Like even Eugene Peterson isn't that whacked out. So like if this happened, then is the word of God settled forever in heaven or is it not? Because the last book of the Bible makes it pretty clear. We're not to be adding to it, but apparently in heaven there are books of the Bible that haven't been settled forever. They haven't been released yet, That they're going to be released in the future. So great, we're going to get new chapters of the Bible, apparently. This ought to be like sending Holy Ghost warning signs off everywhere. And And he's like, well, you know what? This new generation, they're going to have a new word, a new revelation, a new chapter of the book that hasn't been released yet. Jesus will give it to me soon. And when he does, it's going to make Jesus famous again in the earth. Because, you know, there's going to be a greater works generation. And it's like, no wonder Bill Johnson endorses this work, because Bill Johnson also believes in a greater works generation. Quote, Jesus' prophecy of us doing greater works than he did has stirred the church to look for some abstract meaning to this very simple statement. Many theologians seek to honor the works of Jesus as unattainable, which is religion fathered by unbelief. It does not impress God to ignore what he promised under the guise of honoring Jesus on the earth. Jesus' statement is not hard to understand. Greater means greater. And the works he referred to are signs and wonders. It will not be a disservice to him to have a generation obey him and go beyond his own high watermark. He showed us what one person could do who has the spirit without measure. What could millions do? And that was his point, and it became his prophecy, unquote. Now, the Bible says that Jesus was the only one who had the Spirit without measure. Like, we know in part, we prophesy in part, the Spirit divides the gifts amongst us as he will. We don't get the Spirit without measure. But not according to Bill, and not according to whoever this Other's Simon's dude that's like getting kissed by Jesus and shoplifting books in heaven. this whole what could millions do if if millions of people had the spirit without measure is is part of this same discredited new age Bob Jones message that says, Get ready for Jesus' all over the world. Bill's not stopping with with like let's just be little jesus's he's like let's go beyond that let's go beyond jesus's own high water mark. He wants to go above and beyond it. So get ready, because even though there are 21 chapters in the book of John, we'll go beyond that, too. Apparently, there's a John 22 generation that's coming that's going to make Jesus super famous. And here's what I don't understand. Like, like, how is the world suddenly going to embrace and love Jesus? I mean, like, they may love Justin Bieber because he's famous. But like, let's let Jesus tell you himself why he will never be famous or why he will never be loved by the world. John 7 7 the world cannot hate you, but it hateth me because I testify of it that it's works there of evil. BDK translation would say people hate me because I tell them that their works are evil. I call shenanigans on their evil works is what Jesus is basically saying. Now, At this point, it's like, dang, Alice Bailey, you need to talk to Jesus, man. Jesus is not showing a wide tolerance here. He's going around telling people that their works are evil. He ain't never going to get famous that way. But instead of Jesus being like, nope, I call people's works evil and they hate me for it, we've defined and redefined Jesus. He's that good buddy jesus he's that psychedelic super jesus complete with long hippie hair he wants to be cool and famous this is the jesus that goes into the dens of iniquity baby and he hangs with the people and doesn't judge the people and they're like oh man isn't this jesus cool he's partying with us he's texting with us man he's having farting contacts with us man oh how we love this jesus and how this jesus loves us or would the biblical jesus go into that den of sin and say, you know what? I'm going to testify. I'm going to tell you the truth. All this sinning that you're doing, is evil. And they're going to separate you from God. Now here's the good news. Like, I alone can forgive you. I am the only way to the Father. You don't have to keep sinning. You don't have to be in bondage to sin. You can go and sin no more. But I do want you to stop sinning. And yeah, I'm in this den of iniquity, but I'm not participating in all these den of iniquity acts, but I'm preaching righteousness to you and you hate me for it because I'm not showing a wide form of tolerance. And man, you got to show that wide tolerance. Otherwise there's going to be no illumination. This, this judgmental Jesus, he just ain't going to cut the mustard. He just, he's too focused on sin, man. And yet we in the church, Don't possess the same conviction as Christ. Like, we want to do greater works and greater miracles than Jesus, but we don't want to be hated like Jesus. Like, we want to show a wide tolerance. We don't want to call sin evil. We want to call it normal. We don't want to Love people enough to warn them that what the Bible says about sin, that sin sends somebody to hell. Because we don't want to be seen as judgmental. Instead, we say the biggest sin is to judge somebody, to judge whether someone is doing something wrong or not. Just give everybody just that little bit more tolerance. And yet we're all about like, hey, we're gonna do greater things than Jesus. Really? You know what? We're just gonna not offend anybody. We'll just ease people into hell. We'll just be happy. We'll be like, good for you, man. Just just, just kind of talk about Jesus. Be happy that Justin Bieber's having fun and going to church. Just be a little, little, little more gracious towards people. And you're like, you know what? Enough of this judgmental Justin Bieber talk. Like, enough, man. Who cares if him and his pastor hang out in bars and they're knocking back shot after shot? I mean, Justin Bieber's pastor. He's been on Oprah. He's legit. I mean, he thinks it's cool for Justin to be photographed taking off his clothes in front of him as he's dancing around in his underwear next to girls, then that should be cool for everybody. That should be good enough for everybody, man. I mean, like, could it be that that's why Justin Bieber really has a famous pastor? Why he's famous in the earth and Jesus isn't? Because he's not calling shenanigans evil like Jesus would. Man, if only they had a Bible that shows wide tolerance. One that lends authority to their unbiblical practices, because like truthfully, nothing is more of a downer than trying to explain your unbiblical practice and how it's scriptural to someone. And then that person just turns around and says, well, show me that in the Bible. Show me this NAR theology. Show me where the Bible talks about imparting the anointing or where the anointing is transferred from church leader to church leader to followers. Show me where you can issue decrees to God because like a decree is like way different than praying on a humble request to God to do something. When you issue a decree, you're saying that God has to do something because an apostle has given this authority to release God's power in the earth. Like, In your Bible, show me where we're to seek after signs and wonders. Show me where the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit is part of the gospel message. Well, now they can. Let's whip out their passion translation and be like, you know, we're we're glad you asked us. Because, like, let me show you. So, like, let's look at three key ones real quick here, and then we'll move on from this. Let's look at Philippians 1, 1 through 2 in the King James Version. It says, Paul and Timotheus, or that's Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ to the saints in In Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not much in this. It's just your standard greeting. But in the Passion Translation, it reads this way. Dear friends in Philippi, my name is Paul and I'm joined by my spiritual son Timothy. Both of us are passionate servants of Jesus, the Anointed One. We write this letter To all of his devoted followers in your city, including your pastors and all the servant leaders of the church, we decree over your lives the blessings of divine grace and supernatural peace that flow from God, our wonderful Father and anointed Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Now, notice in Philippians, there's nothing about this apostolic decreeing going on, there's nothing about decreeing divine blessings over people and all this other riffraff. But, Somehow, they add it. Just, I don't even know where they got it from. They just put it in there. Like, hey, we can, we can decree divine grace and supernatural peace and all kinds of other stuff to the servant leaders and whatnot. Right. Let's look at another one. Galatians 6, 6-8, King James Version of the Bible. Let him that is taught the word communicate unto him that teaches in all good things. And it's kind of a tricky one in the King James. Let's let's read it in the New King James. The meaning will become a little bit more clear. It says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Basically, the church has always classically understood this passage to mean that church members should take care of the financial and other material needs of their spiritual leaders. That's not what it says in the Passion Translation. It says in the Passion Translation, And those who are taught the word will receive an impartation from their teacher. A transference of anointing takes place between them. A what? An impartation from their teacher, a transference of anointing? Where'd they get that from? Here's what it says. Let him that taught the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Where in the heck did they get transferring anointings from teachers to students, the transferring anointings taking place and receiving impartations, that's not in there. But, you know, we'll just put it in there so that we can preach on it one day. Neat. If it doesn't say it, we'll just make it up and add it to the verse. That's legit, right? I mean, like, there's, there's mystery books in heaven, so that's, this is in a stretch. Well, one more. 2 Timothy 4.2, King James Version. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. There's the Passion Translation. Proclaim the word of God and stand on it no matter what. Rise to the occasion and preach when it is convenient and when it's not. Preach in the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit with wisdom and patience as you instruct and teach people. Now, notice that Simmons has injected this mystical part of the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit into this passage. can't be found in any of the other translations, this full outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Um, He just adds that in there. He doesn't really define it. It's just like a full outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Like, is voodoo shaking the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Is, like, barking like a dog part of the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit? If you're in a church and you have a dog collar on, and someone's leading you up and down the aisle and you're singing hymns, is that the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Can you be any more vague? But like full outpouring of the Holy Spirit isn't in there. That's added. But not only does he add, but he takes away two really important parts of this passage. He removes that all that correcting and rebuking part. Get that correcting and rebuking part out of there, because that doesn't show a wide tolerance. Alice Bailey would not approve. Ain't nobody going to get illuminated if there be all this correcting and rebuking going on. That won't make Jesus super cool or famous. Just moving the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's what's most important. It's like Chris Gore, who's the director of Bethel Healing Ministries, said in his book, walking in supernatural power, quote, it's never my place to judge, it's my my role to love. When I prophesy, my role is to bring out golden people. I never bring out dirt, it doesn't take much prophetic discernment to prophesy dirt, but what it takes is someone looking from God's perspective to see gold, unquote. So really, that's what prophecy looks like from God's perspective, right? Like, God would never call someone's dirt out or say their works were evil, would they? No, I mean like technically I thought the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy according to Revelations 19.10 and Jesus says in John 7.7 that the world hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil but does that mean that Jesus Christ the son of the living God who's the living word of God made flesh doesn't have much prophetic discernment according to Chris Gore in Bethel Church? Well. That's kind of what they're saying, and, and, and it's good, because now they can restore that discernment. Now they can have a, a better version of the Bible that, that says what it always should have says. And that Bible, you know, it must be right, because after all, God kissed Brian Simmons on the nose, breathed in his nostrils, downloaded the real meaning of the Bible to him in Hebrew and Aramaic so that he could translate it properly, wink, wink. I mean, he even took them to heaven, showed them books that aren't yet to be revealed. And and herein lies the darker problem with all of this. Because like on one side, you have a movement that has its own Bible, its own guidelines for prophecy, its own interpretation of the Great Commission. A Jesus who craves fame and fortune and is not complete, and that can be conquered, that can be wrecked. You have a Holy Spirit who's a sneaky genie, You have a heavenly father who's up in heaven pranking angels and the angels are having farting contests. You have a forerunner generation of Christian mystics who are a bunch of Jesus freaks running around on the earth. And like they're going to manifest the future millennial kingdom like right now by pulling it into the present quantumly so that Jesus can be manifest. And if we don't do that, if we stand against it, then you know what? Like then Justin Bieber's mom, dude, She prayed and was zapped by Jehovah Zappam. And if we stand against it, you know who we're really standing against? We're standing against Justin Bieber getting saved. And I'm not joking when I say this, okay? I said it that way kind of to be provocative, but, like, this is the point. Catch this point. Because, like, on the other side of that aisle of all the shenanigans that I just talked about is us. We believe that the word of God is the word of God, that he settled it forever. He sealed it. He said, don't add to it. Don't subtract to it. He promises he's going to preserve it so that it's profitable for doctrine and teaching, that it alone is the baseline for faith and practice. But then on the other side of that aisle over there again, you're like, Hey man, your narrow view of God is dangerous and unloving. Stop putting God in a box. It's like one thing for you to be all uppity and sour pushed about Jesus. And if you want to be a Pharisee and poo-poo this new move of God in your own life, fine, do it. Just stay away from our meetings. Don't listen to our music. Don't buy our CDs. Don't attend our conferences. Don't sign up for our mystical schools. Just shut up. Don't speak out against us. Don't touch God's anointed apostles or prophets. Stop calling shenanigans because the only person you're hurting are people like Justin Bieber who are seeking after the Lord. You're hindering somebody from receiving their miracle and finding freedom. Jesus isn't going to get famous this way. You're hindering the 7M mandate. You're becoming a stumbling block to the body. It's like a schism is forming, and they're drawing up spiritual battle lines. It's almost like the church is on the verge of a civil war. There's a great divide. Everyone is offended, like it says in Matthew 24, because of this issue, this issue of compromising what love is, just as Jesus predicted, except we are woefully underprepared for the battle is coming, and they are not. They are preparing for a new inquisition, literally a final quest. In 1996, Rick Joyner published a book actually entitled The Final Quest, and it's one of his key prophetic words for the movement. It's one of the best-selling books of the NAR. And in this book, Rick has a spiritual prophetic vision of the end times and the day of the Lord. He was supposedly taken to heaven, and there he claims to have met Jesus, the Apostle Paul, William Branham, angels, and a bunch of other disciples. And Joyner summarizes his main dream in chapter 1 as a call from God for his readers to focus in on end times events and to focus in on fighting against other believers in this great Christian civil war, page 22. As a matter of fact, this war will be fought from within the church, page 37. He states that the Lord is now preparing leadership that will be willing to fight a spiritual civil war, page 37. He predicts that those on his side will be called the dreaded champions, page 56, and they will ultimately win this civil war by enabling a leadership of prophet judges, page 128, like himself to start governing the entire body of Christ. Jordan predicts that his side's spiritual warfare will harm many of the Christians who disagree with him, Even though Joyner's side had hoped at one point to recruit these believers instead. He tells us, We did wound many of our brethren, page 129. I did fire off a few arrows as some others did. Almost all of them hit Christians, page 25. I started to wonder if this next battle would be against our own brothers again, page 129. Joyner claims that this civil war will appear as if it's the end of the church, page 37 and will cause the meltdown of Christianity itself, page 29. Joyner claims that this Christian civil war, page 36, is the ultimate conflict, page 37, the battle of the last days, page 115. He believes that his side's eventual victory and success in removing all Christian opposition to his side's leadership of the church will actually be the day of the Lord, page 36, this is confirmed to join her by the host of heaven, or that's the angels, who tell him that the day of the Lord of hosts has come, page 36. On page 22, he puts it this way. He sees a great end times army rise up. Quote, there will be a special anointing released for the mobilization of the army of the Lord. There will be an impartation of strategic vision to boldly march against the greatest strongholds of our time. The army which Joel speaks about is ready to be revealed. They will take cities. They will burst through the enemy's strongholds. They will take houses and families. The very heavens and the earth are about to shake because of this great army. Its time has come. I turned and I saw the army of the Lord standing before me. There were thousands of soldiers, but they were greatly outnumbered. I was shocked and disheartened as it seemed that there were actually more Christians being used by the evil one than there were in the army of the Lord. I knew that this battle was about to begin was going to be viewed as the great Christian Civil War because very few would understand the powers that were behind the impending conflict. So like this American Civil War, Joyner explains that this coming spiritual Civil War will also be between the blue and the gray. In in Dreams and Visions, like blue often represents heavenly mindedness. The sky is blue. But the gray speaks of those who live by the power of their mind alone. Their brain is often called gray matter. So this will be a conflict between those who are genuinely Christian, but the NAR feels that they live mostly according to their natural minds and human wisdom. They wind up getting in the way of the next move of God. So Joel's army must rise up for this final quest and take them out. So here's what's crazy, right? Like, Joel's army from the book of Joel is not the good guy army. These are mighty men, the gibberim, released upon the earth like a swarm of locusts devouring and destroying everywhere they go as an instrument of God's judgment against God's enemy. And I could do like a two-hour podcast alone about Joel's army, about the gibberim, about who they are, what the mighty men are, how they tie into the book of Revelation, the locusts from the bottom of those pits like everything, but that would be another two-hour conversation in and of itself. But let me just put it this way. The Joel's army of the Book of Joel is a demonic army, hell-bent on destruction. But yet, in the NAR, they're recast as the good guys, the dreaded champions. They are the manifest sons of God, the forerunner generation, the new breed army. And they're not being used to play God's enemies They are fighting and taking out the biblical church who won't embrace this move of God in the earth. So the final battle isn't between Jesus and Satan on the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord to them is actually the day where God begins judging the church and purging the great Christians from it so that he can have a pure church so that Christ can be birthed and manifest through the blue church, and this is how Christ will come again to the earth. Now, this may seem crazy and harsh, but this is actually God's mercy, according to these guys. This is God removing the stumbling blocks from the body so that people can get saved. Rick Joyner writes on page 10 of the Harvest Trilogy this, Phineas executed judgment with a javelin for the Lord. The dismantling of organizations and disbanding of some works will be a positive and exhilarating experience for the Lord's faithful servants. Those serving in leadership must trust their discernment to remove the stumbling blocks. To be distinguished from the stumbling blocks, the Lord will raise up a great company of prophets, teachers, pastors, and apostles that will be of the spirit of Phineas, just as the son of Eleazar could not tolerate iniquity in the camp of the Lord. This ministry of Phineas will save congregations and at times even whole nations from the plagues that are sweeping the earth. Now, if you read a bunch of this NAR literature, you're going to see a common theme and warning repeated through much of it. You're going to see repeated reference to Ananias and Sapphira, who died a horrible death as a result of lying to the Holy Spirit, and they'll even throw in blaspheming the Holy Spirit in there too. Christians are reminded over and over again if they resist or rebel against what God is doing in the earth through the prophets and the apostles, that they could suffer the exact same fate as being killed like Ananias and Sapphira. The church is being told that the ministry that judged Ananias and Sapphira is being revived and restored to the church by the prophets. They'll operate in that book of Acts where you just don't lie to the prophets. Fear of this is actually growing Within the community today, members are afraid to speak out against errors and abuse. Out of fear, many are submitting to the prophets or they're being accused of blaspheming the Holy Ghost and they'll lose their salvation. Now, another one of these original New Apostolic Reformation apostles is Jack Deere, and he was an associate professor of Old Testament theology at Dallas Cemetery. A conservative Baptist cemetery He did not believe in this apostate theology until he had a run-in with the Kansas City prophets in 1980. But like when he got all wrecked, he quit and became a leading voice in the new prophetic movement, and he even paints a bolder, bloodier vision of the church's slaughter at the hands of Joel's army. Quote, The scripture never encourages us to warn the unbeliever of the wrath that is to come, When the prophets speak to God's people, they warn God's people about what's to come. And then God says to God's people, not the unbelievers, but he says to God's people, let the land and those who live in the Palestine, let them tremble. Now, how could that be? Our Lord Jesus is coming back. We believe that. But why should God's people tremble? He's coming to the church. He's going to come to the church before he comes for the church. 1 Peter 4.17 says the judgment is near and that it's going to begin with the house of God. The Lord Jesus, before he comes comes and, visited and visits judgment upon the earth, he's going to come and visit it upon the church. And no one, no one in his church is going to escape that judgment. You really want the day of the Lord to come? Woe to you. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. That day will be darkness, not light. He's coming in judgment. He's coming to purify his church. He will not come back for that bride. He will come to purify his church and make it his bride. That's why judgment is going to come. How is God going to bring judgment upon his church and then judgment upon the land after his church? He's going to do it with a large and mighty army. Now, what is this army like? Well, he says first off in verse 3, well, first off, he says this army is totally unique. This Army, There's never been one like it, and there'll never be one like it in ages to come. When this army comes, he says, is large and mighty. It's so mighty that there's never been anything like it before. He says, begin the slaughter, and it begins in the temple, and it begins with the elders and the leaders of my people, and they walk through the land, and they begin to start the slaughter, and it's coming now amongst the church. He'll start with the leaders, but then he'll move out into the church. That's why he says in verse 2, it is not a day of rejoicing or happiness. It's a day of darkness and gloom. It's a day of darkness and clouds, like dawn spreading across the mountains. You really want the day of the Lord to come? Woe to you. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. That day will be darkness, not light. End quote. Now notice how they twist all of this and cloak all of this in violence And they do it kind of by parsing it in scriptural-sounding terms. But here's the thing. Scripturally, judgment does begin at the house of the Lord. But the last day's judgment isn't a bloody slaughter of Christians, and then we're just going to call that the day of the Lord. The judgment that comes upon the church that starts at the, the house of the Lord is that he gives over those who love not the truth to a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. If you want to really put it bluntly, like the delusion, like the, the judgment that begins at the house of the Lord are people being turned over to this apostate garbage. Not that the church is being slaughtered, like wholesale slaughter and bloody killing of Christians who aren't down with the NAR. That's not what this is talking about. On the day of the Lord, Jesus destroys the Antichrist and the false prophet and the wicked ones who followed them and took the mark of the beast. He's not coming after the Bible-believing Christians or the church to slaughter them. And what's even more twisted is they're like, you know what? It's all good, man. It's all good. Like, if you believe in the shack and different types of universalism, then, then it's like, it's all good, man. I mean, like, you great Christians, you and your institutions and your doctrines have kept men in spiritual slavery, Final Quest 37. God's going to use this war to liberate men who want to be free. And if you don't want to be free, you can die a bloody death in this Inquisition. But, hey, you'll still get to heaven. It's all good. I, and I know, I know that logic sounds super crazy, right? Because, like, you would think that this isn't something that you're handing out in a gospel trick. You don't lead with this information when you're trying to convert somebody, Right. You don't lead with this violent rhetoric. But, you know, then again, they're not hiding it either. What they do do is they paint this great offense between them and the church. They play the martyr. They say, dude, like, I'm having fun, getting high on God. Don't you dare ruin my spiritual buzz. And then this resentment starts in. You're like, dude, how dare you say anything? You're a piece of crap. And, like, that's literally what they're saying. And the next clip proves this. And and this is a very stunning clip and it's one of those times where I wish you could see the video that goes with the audio because like first we have Crowder, right? And we talked about him in his supernatural school of mystic ministry. He's got a habit of getting high on the Holy Ghost and, and smoking the baby Jesus and token some sandalwood and reinterpreting the gospel, him, Jesus on the main line in a pretty blasphemous way. And he's got a video blog, right? It's called the Jesus trip where he's, Like, if you watch the beginning of it, it looks like a Pink Floyd video. But, like, in the middle of it, people get sucked into the heart of Jesus. And there's the goat god Pan playing his flute. I mean, it's just it's crazily demonic, just blatantly. Anyways, in this video, we see a kid with long hair. And he's got, like, a skate punk hat on it that says apostolic on the brim of it. He's the one that's standing with Crowder in the video. And Crowder's like, teach this to the people. And then the kid with the apostolic hat talks about how to talk the holy ghost and then Crowder says you know what that's better than i could have taught it and then like the next thing is we see apostolic punk kid again and he's holding a grape flavored gummy rancher a grape flavored gummy rancher that's like one of those gummy ranchers that look like a like a cluster of grapes and he's actually teaching that eating it is the new way of taking communion and then on top of that then you start to hear some ominous military rat-a-tat-tat music play the part that you can't see is when that music is playing he's recorded himself dancing to that music like a gangster he's wearing the now he has that you know that that gangster apostolic punk hat on now he's wearing the bandana over his nose and his mouth like a gangster and he's acting like he's shooting a machine gun and stabbing people with a knife and then the music stops and he is visibly angry And he's like, these people going around spewing all this crap, they're wrong. They're going to get taken out by the river of the Holy Ghost. But it's cool because I love you with a perfect love. But while he's saying that he's loving everybody, he's actually putting both middle fingers up in the air and flipping people off with a giant two-fisted FU salute while he's talking about how he loves people with a perfect love. um, We've
7: been huffing... um... Olive wood from the Garden of Gethsemane,
0: and we've been um, sorting some dust from the tomb of our Lord and
2: Savior. Oh, we've been smoking, baby Jesus.
0: I, I want you just to find their vein, just find their vein, and I just want you to shoot them up, Jesus on line. Tell him what you want.
1: How to do that real quick? Give
3: him the teaching, man. We'll, teach yeah, well, it's the Ruach. You just put your fingers together and just take a big old token of the Holy Ghost and the breath of life comes to you and you get high. <laughs> That's better than I can do. It's jelly. It's a mixture of matter and moisture. A mixture of the liquid and the physical it's a matter of reverence to Jesus it's a matter of the reality of eating his flesh and drinking his blood continuously hallelujah and I just want to share with you the jelly rancher communion of the the wine the body and the blood of Jesus Christ here and the little grape jelly jolly. There's been a lot of crap flowing through the church for a long time, literally sewage flowing down the aisles of the church, and I am sick and tired of it. I just can't wait for the river of God to blast all the crap out of the church in America. America. I love you so much with an everlasting love, I really, truly do
1: now i know that 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 was kind of shocking but like should this violence and this rhetoric in the name of god shock people i mean this new breed apostolic anointing just doesn't seem to phase people anymore like like, it doesn't seem to phase tattooed, ground-and-pound, apostolic, adulterer Todd Bentley. It's just a normal part of this whole Joel's Army revival. And God help any piece of crap that gets in the way of this Latter Rain revival. I mean, like, why desensitize people to these acts of violence? Why induce dark manifestations of violence into people at these Revivals. Why visually and audibly cue people that sometimes, you know, a loving and perfect God is going to light people up with a machine gun or that he's going to lead somebody to kick a lady in the face? Do it, Jesus! A brand new hip. Bam, 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 bam.
0: Machine gun, light them up with Holy Ghost fire! Fire! Ha! 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 Lord, here tonight, we're gonna baptize you in the name of the Boomba. Bam! The name of the we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do the mass Shikabumba. Are I just want to be a new creation of God. I just.
5: Oh. <laughs>
0: Well, what's happening? (laughs) I'll tell you what's happening. People are getting healed in Lakeland. You need to come and get some. (laughs) The woman was standing in the back of the room when the faith of God hit the meeting and her tumor exploded out of her right leg, slid down her leg onto the floor. I said, God, I've prayed for like a hundred crippled people, not one. He said, that's because I want you to grab that lady's crippled legs and bang them up and down on the platform like a baseball bat. (laughs) I walked up and I grabbed her legs and I started going, Be healed! Be healed! I started banging them up and down on the platform. She got healed. And I'm thinking, God, why is not the power of God moving? He said, because you haven't kicked that woman in the face. And there's this older lady worshiping right in front of the platform. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me. The gift of faith came on me. He said, kick her in the face. With your biker boot. I inched closer and I went like this. BAM! And just as my boot made contact with her nose, she fell into the power of God. And I saw him, and the gift of faith came on me. I said, what do I do, God? And God told me to just run him down. So I jumped up in the air, and I went, bam! And I hit him to the ground, jumped onto him and got into a full mount. Ground and pound. I jumped on there and I was in a full mount. And something came over me, and instead of punching I grabbed him by the neck and started choking him. And I said, come out of him, devil! Come out of him, devil! Now, I was in another meeting one time, and I called out this Chinese gentleman. And all of a sudden, I went running down the aisle, and I I hit this guy so hard, it drove him back several feet. He hit the ground, and his tooth popped right out of his
1: mouth. And furthermore, if you think about it, man, like, why is YouTube filled with videos of Bill Johnson walking around with a Crusader sword, Knighting all the graduates of a supernatural ministry as if they're preparing to go on a final quest or a crusade. Like, did Jesus ever knight people? Did his disciples ever knight people? Like, why do you have to go beyond the biblical practice of simply laying hands on someone for ordination? Like, why are they exposing people to this hyper-violent rhetoric and warfare imagery? Why are they lock and loading for a war or a crusade as Rick Joyner puts it in the final quest? One where a non-apostolic Christians are in their crosshairs, but why, why are they so angry? Why are they so offended with such an F you flip them the bird anger? I mean, in perfect love, of course, like, why do they have this attitude of like, why do you heresy hunters, you know, you go around and you're a bunch of killjoys, Like, why do you think you're doing this? Like, you should be ashamed of yourself. It's one thing if you want to be sad and sober, but I want to smoke the Holy Ghost. Like, if you don't want to be healed, fine. Fine. Then don't be healed. Like, like if you don't want to get high or drunk in the Holy Ghost or shoot Jesus like heroin, then then, then fine. But stop standing in the way of somebody else's joy. Like, don't you want to be healed? Like, then fine. Then But if you don't want to be healed... Like, don't say it's wrong to kick an old lady in the face. Because, like, if you, if you talk a lady out of getting kicked in the face, you might get her talked out of getting healed, and then God ain't going to be happy. Shame on you for putting Yahweh in the theological box. Stop trying to hinder revival. Just wait, because God will have his revival, even if he has to remove you stumbling blocks from the earth in a bloody civil war. I mean, that's just love, man. That's just love. I mean, yeah, you might be dead, but but like you'll still be saved. You'll still get into heaven. So if we kill you, like no harm, no foul. I mean, like nobody yells at a doctor for eradicating cancer cells from the body. I mean, like worst case scenario, you, you probably get to see Jesus a little early and you might lose some of your rewards and crowns and you'll probably miss out on participating in the world's greatest move of God, but you'll still get to make it to heaven and that's better than you deserve. Isn't God full of mercy and isn't he full of grace? <sighs> okay, now I'm a little worked up. I'm sweating over here. Um so like so let's let's take a moment and let's recap what we learned so far. And let's see how close Jesus' prophecies are. Jesus predicted that there would come a spiritual deception in the last days. That would come from within the church, and it would come from people that were saying that they were commissioned and authorized by Jesus to speak for Jesus like these modern apostles do. Jesus further predicts, not once but twice, that this is a movement of false prophets. And not only would this be a false apostolic and prophetic movement responsible for this deception, but that it would produce many false Christs and many false prophets. Or as Bob Jones puts it, get ready for little Jesuses all over the world. Or as New Age teachers put it, The outpouring of the Christ principle, the true second coming, the law of divisibility. This movement would also show great signs and wonders, according to Jesus, inasmuch that if it were possible, it would deceive the very elect. Jesus also predicted that people would not be looking for his coming because they would be saying, he's here, he's already here, he's being manifest in the earth. The kingdom is being manifest. We're pulling the millennial kingdom from the future into the present so that the final Christ for this age can be revealed. Jesus also predicted that there would be a schism within the church, that we would betray each other over an offense, a civil war, a time where they think that killing us is actually doing the Lord a service and fulfilling his prophetic plan to usher in the day of the Lord. Is there any doubt what's happening here? what Jesus is warning his church about. And that's the amazing thing about Bible prophecy. Yeah, he's warning his church, but there is also a lot of comfort in his warnings. There's always hope, even in the short little verses of Matthew 24, like Matthew 24:25, where Jesus said, Behold, I have told you beforehand, so he knows and he is in control. Nothing is catching him off guard. He will return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So you don't need to fear the future, my friend, because in the end, Yeshua wins. Now, we've spent the last three and a half hours working through just part of this chapter, and it's so amazing because it reads like an issue of the Sunday paper. It's so current. Everything he predicted is coming to pass. So the stakes are very high. We can see that the time is running out. There are souls at stake. And then there are things that we must do to prepare to face this hour. And he has told us everything, everything beforehand. So if you can trust this prophecy, then you can also lay hold of the admonition found in Matthew 24, 46, where Jesus said, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Or you could put it this way. Blessed is that servant whom the master finds at work when he comes back. So are you faithfully working for your master in this hour? Are you prepared to meet him? Are you being a faithful servant Are you faithfully contending for the truth of God's word or have you been troubled by the information that you've heard today because you hold to some of these dangerous beliefs or you might even attend a church that promotes them? And that's part of this warning that Christ made to you and he made it to you in love. He doesn't want you to be deceived. He wants to bring you back into the liberty and the freedom of truth. If something did trouble you, please take what you heard today and lay it before Jesus and ask him to confirm his word in truth to you. He will. He most certainly will. Now, before we go, I want to remind you that what you're listening to right now, this is only the first part of episode 100. This is only volume one. Part 2 or Volume 2 of Episode 100 will air this Thursday in place of the normal 4th Watch Radio episode. Justin has declared this whole week on the 4th Watch Radio Network, Episode 100 Week. As a matter of fact, I was talking with Justin and we were going through some of the information in this episode and he's like, dude, you can't present all of the information that you have to present in a normal episode you need to stretch this out into two volumes and he's right man like this would be a 6 hour plus podcast if I tried to cram everything into one show so I want to thank you Justin for for giving me that awesome idea for giving me the grace to do it for having omega frequency on the fourth watch as part of the programming and I want to thank you for being such an awesome brother in Christ to me and I want to Thank you for just giving me the space to span this monster episode out over a week so that I didn't have to cut out any of the information. You're a dude that like is interested in truth and proclaiming truth and proclaiming sound doctrine and exposing Satan's lies. And man, I am, I am proud and I am honored and I am privileged to stand in the remnant and fight with you in this revolution. So on Thursday, we're going to continue our investigation into this subject. And specifically, we are going to look at how this new apostolic Reformation theology will give rise to the false prophet and how they will champion him as their ultimate prophet for the age. We will then look closer at the teachings of William Branham and how four key things he taught will be used to explain to Christians that every age or dispensation has had its own unique head prophet and unique Messiah, and that Jesus was only one of many messiahs, therefore setting up a false new age messiah to come. We will talk further about Jesus' prophecy, about the Jewish leaders not receiving him, but receiving the false messiah instead, What would a false messiah have to do if he wants to be received by today's Jewish leaders? And how do plans for a new temple in Jerusalem that will be called a house of prayer for all nations and faiths tie into the rise of that new age messiah? And does this new temple hold a clue as to why and how the false prophet calls down fire from heaven? I have a pretty unique theory about it, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. And if you want to find out what it is, then you'll have to join me this Thursday as episode 100 week continues as I present New Age Messiah, Earth's Final Pharaoh, Volume 2. Grace and peace, everyone. As this week's episode draws to a close... I want to share with you how you can find freedom from this world's system of slavery to sin. The very first thing that we must understand is that in this world, everyone is a slave to sin. We all have sinned and we all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that we're rebels, we're criminals, we've broken God's law. We are locked in a spiritual prison and we are very much prisoners of war. We're caught between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And Satan has legal rights to steal, to kill, and to destroy because of the fall. He steals from us our hope. We look around at this prison and we think we will never escape. He destroys our lives in the darkness and ultimately he will succeed in killing many souls as they follow him to hell but the gospel or the good news of the kingdom is that through the finished work of Christ revealed in his death, burial and resurrection there is redemption, there is restoration and there is freedom offered by God to each and every person who would receive Christ as the king of the spiritual kingdom King Jesus came to earth he lived The sin free life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die. And he rose from the dead triumphantly. And he has the keys to hell and death. And he has the keys to your prison cell and he offers you the freedom that only he can offer because he alone can bind up the brokenhearted. he alone proclaims liberty to the captives and he alone opens the door to the prison and he looses all who are bound 2,000 years ago in that one moment of redemption every single prison cell was opened God made a way through Jesus for everyone to potentially escape. But here's the problem. Most of us have stopped right there. We've stopped right there with the gospel. We may have heard the story. We may have heard the good news. But we sit there still in this dark cell and we're like, Oh, wow, isn't it amazing? He died for me. I can be free. I can be forgiven. My prison door can swing wide open. Forgiveness is available. He provides for me a way of escape. But you have to stand up. You have to walk out and boldly approach the throne of grace. You have to surrender to the King, repent of your sins, and trust Christ to absolutely save you. Ask the Holy Spirit to grant you the power to do that. Ask him to soften your heart so that you can see sin as God sees it. Ask him to trouble your heart with godly sorrow over the times where you broke his laws. And from the honesty of your own heart, in your own words, call out to Jesus to save you. And step out by faith and say, I am free. Confess Christ as your savior before men and lay down your old life and put on his new life instead. Today is the day of salvation. Today you can switch allegiances. You can accept the terms of heavenly surrender. You can leave the kingdom of darkness and begin to walk in the newness of life and never turn back. Now, if I can help you further, either by talking with you more about the salvation that Jesus offers you, or if I can encourage you, To take the next step in living a sold-out radical kingdom life for Him, please visit OmegaFrequency.com and click on the navigational link entitled Salvation. From there you're going to find a button that says, Please Help Me Take the Next Step. And if you use it, I'll be able to communicate with you specifically about this matter. Well, as always, I want to thank you once again for taking the time to download this week's episode It has truly been my honor to be able to spend time with you this week and to discuss the things of Yeshua and his coming kingdom with you. Until next time, may Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. For listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing it with someone else. Our full podcast archives, along with their original show notes, can be found online at omegafrequency.com. Now until next time, this is BDK reminding you that we don't need to fear the future. Because in the end, Yeshua wins.